The following episode of Lyrics of Their Life contains extreme adult themes. It is not suitable for children and contains violence, sexual references, drug use, and quotes and references that may be offensive to some. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Hello and welcome to Lyrics of Their Life, the podcast that talks about the extraordinary lives lived by those that wrote or performed the songs we know and love. I'm your host Adam Hampton, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about Slash. Slash is a legendary guitarist known for his incredible ability on the electric guitar and his iconic rock star appearance. Dressed in a top hat and sporting his black curly hair, he was best known for his time in the American heavy rock band Guns N' Roses, and for his work playing for a range of superstars such as Bob Dylan and Michael Jackson. Slash would also have a successful career as a solo artist, and formed a number of his own successful bands like Velvet Revolver. He has overcome struggles with addiction and alcohol, and managed to start a family of his own. His dedication to the art of performing is second to none and will undoubtedly inspire generations of aspiring guitar players for a long time to come. This is the story of Slash. This is Lyrics of Their Life. Slash was born Saul Hudson on the 23rd of July 1965 in Hampstead, England. It is said that his parents named Saul after Saul Steinberg, who was an illustrator for the New York Times. As a child, Saul sported his mother's black curly locks with a tan complexion and dark brown eyes. Saul's parents were Anthony Hudson and Ola Hudson. The two were in an interracial relationship as Anthony was a white British man and Ola was a black African American woman. The two met in Paris in France and is the place where Saul was said to be conceived, literally welcoming Saul into the world nine months later. Anthony was an English artist who designed album artwork for a range of musicians, while Ola was a highly successful and renowned costume designer who had worked with an impressive list of celebrities and musicians. Ola was originally born in Los Angeles in the US and had gone to study in London. This led her to meet Anthony, and the two settled down near London before giving birth to their first child, Saul. Due to Ola's work commitments back in Los Angeles, she moved there on her own to pursue her career. Saul would remain in England to be raised by his father and his paternal grandparents in Stoke-on-Trent in Staffordshire, England. As a child, Slash was reserved and a bit of a loner who struggled to fit in with kids his own age. He struggled to express himself and make friends. His parents were both very creative hippie type people who would do a lot of painting, drawings and sketching and would encourage their children to do the same. Saul's father would even paint his hard boiled eggs of a morning which showed just how passionate his parents were about art and expression through art. His father would take him on the train from Stoke down to London and take Saul to see a range of art galleries to the shopping centre, the National History Museum and local markets filled with creative paintings and crafty items. Saul would learn of artists such as Picasso, Matisse, Escher and David Hockney who became some of his favourites throughout his life. 
His father and uncles would raise him on great British music like the Yardbirds, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, the Who, Cream and the Moody Blues, with their song Nights in White Satin becoming one of his favourite songs and as far as he can remember, it is the earliest memory of the first song he ever heard. Saul was a big fan of stylized graphic art and as a child had no constraints on his freedom to explore art as he would become invested in painting, doodling and being imaginative. He would often draw pictures of dinosaurs which would remain a lifelong interest of his. His grandparents were successful artists and had quite an influence on Saul as well. During class he was known to draw and daydream often staring out the window. He would regularly get in trouble for this, but his father couldn't understand what the problem was with daydreaming and drawing. His teacher said he can't spend his whole life drawing, and his father replied, well someone should tell Picasso that. Saul's parents' easygoing and creative nature was the perfect way for Saul to develop his dreams and aspirations. Despite having a good upbringing, Saul dearly missed his mother while she was in LA. In 1970, at the age of five, Saul and his father finally joined Ola in Los Angeles to live after Anthony had acquired a position working for Asylum Records, where he would design album artwork for the likes of Neil Young, Jackson Brown and Joni Mitchell. LA at the time was a hot spot for artistic creativity and Saul was surrounded by celebrities and creative people that helped inspire him further. Ola worked with a range of superstars in LA, including the likes of James Taylor, Sonny and Sher, Carly Simon, Joni Mitchell, Janis Joplin, Flip Wilson, Ringo Starr, Janet Jackson, Diana Ross, Linda Rostat, John Lennon, the Pointer Sisters, and most notably, David Bowie. Joni Mitchell was very good friends with Saul's parents and lived just up the road from them. As a child, Saul watched the Disney animated film called Fantasia on TV and it opened up his mind to an amazing combination of art and music, inspiring him and contributing to his love of music. Saul would hang out with his father at the recording studio with the superstars he did album artwork for and became familiar with what the music industry appeared to be at a young age. He would noticeably listen to the music being recorded and had an ear for it. Alice Cooper was one of these artists and vaguely remembered Saul as a youngster being there with his father. It wouldn't be an easy transition into American schools with Saul feeling highly self-conscious and like an outcast with his large afro-like curly hair often being the subject of bullying with many of the other children having parents that were bankers or real estate agents and he felt that he couldn't relate. His parents would often play Saul their Led Zeppelin, The Doors and Jimi Hendrix records which became some of Saul's favourite bands to listen to, inspiring his love of rock music and great guitar riffs. Saul especially loved Led Zeppelin's drummer John Bonham's incredible drumming style which further increased his love of their music. As Saul grew up he began listening to FM radio and started getting interested in bands like Cheap Trick, Ted Nugent, Black Sabbath and most notably Aerosmith as he loved the sexualized lyrics and dirty style rock they would play. Saul would listen to AM radio initially before discovering FM radio and every night he would leave it running to help him sleep throughout the night. In 1972, Ola gave birth to a second boy naming him Albion Hudson. At the age of nine, Saul's parents would soon divorce in 1974 with young Albion just being two years old. It was believed to be the result of Saul's father's problems with alcohol and a number of other issues that arose during the time. 
Not long after their divorce, Ola repartnered with her client David Bowie and he became a stepfather-like figure to Saul for a short period of time. With Bowie even tucking Saul in of a night, and Saul had even witnessed his mother and Bowie naked wrestling as he would later describe it. Saul was not a fan of Bowie being with his mother at the time, and had a strong dislike for him, but found it cool at the same time to be in the presence of a music legend. The two would later form a bond after Bowie split with Ola, and the two would occasionally meet up when time permitted. Saul's father returned to England, moving away from his son, which devastated young Saul and his brother Albion. Saul began to rebel around the time of his parents' divorce, and was seen as a problem child from here on out. He began smoking pot, drinking alcohol, and shoplifting. During his parents' split, Saul and his brother lived with their mother Ola, and would often be sent to their maternal grandparents' household to stay when Ola had to work. Saul and his brother loved their grandparents, and it was here that Saul would pick up his first guitar. In grade 5, in 1975, Saul met his first good friend, Mark Cantor. Mark described Saul at the time as a curly-haired kid with an afro that wore moccasins, and was extremely quiet, but a good kid that kept to himself. Mark introduced Saul to his first lover, BMX Bikes. The two would ride nearly every day, all around LA, and Saul would quickly become the better rider of the two, and was a natural. They would enter into a range of competitions that were miles away, where Saul would usually win with his flashy tricks before riding back together at midnight at just the age of 10 to 12. Saul had an uncanny ability to focus on a passion and practice relentlessly until he was a pro at something. At age 13, Saul was given the nickname Slash by famous actor Seymour Cassell, as he was Mark Cantor's father. Seymour allowed the boys to skip school as long as they pruned his pot plants for him. The two happily agreed, anything to get out of school. As Saul was regularly at Seymour's house hanging out with Mark, Seymour noticed how agile and zippy Saul was, as one minute he was over there, then the next he was over there and always in a hurry, and that he is always slashing around. Saul liked the nickname, and it stuck with almost everyone, with the exception of his grandmother, calling him Slash. Around the age of 14, the boy now known as Slash, met a boy named Steve Adler, as the two attended junior high together at Fairfax High School. The two quickly became friends, and Steve had fallen from his skateboard, and was laughed at by his peers, with no one wanting to help him up except for Slash. Steve was new to the school, and Slash made him feel welcome. Steve had moved into his grandparents' house in LA after being kicked out by his mother, as he too was from a separated family and was a problem child. The two began to get up to mischief together, skipping school and heading to Steve's place to get stoned and listen to music. As Steve's grandparents were bakers, they would leave early to prepare the bread for the day, providing Steve with the house completely to himself. Steve had a favourite record he liked to put on his cheap record player, and it was Kiss Live 2. He would crank the volume, plug his cheap electric guitar into his amp, and just go crazy on it, pretending to be Ace Freely of Kiss. This excited Slash, and inspired him to focus his attention on music, and away from BMX riding. Slash was attracted to the ability to play loud, the sound of distortion, and the ability to get all of your anger and frustration out and suited him perfectly for what he was going through at the time. Slash returned to his grandmother's house and asked her if she had a guitar he could play. 
His grandmother went to the closet and pulled out an old Spanish flamenco acoustic guitar that only had one string, but that was more than enough for Slash to get started as he began playing with just the one string at the age of 15. He began taking bass guitar lessons with his music teacher, Robert Wallen, at Fairfax High School. He heard his teacher, Mr. Wallen, play Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones on electric guitar one day and switched his attention to that on just his first lesson. Saul and his friends would break into their own school once it was closed for the day and skate, race their bikes around the school and hang out listening to music when Stephen Adler played him a cassette tape of Van Halen's Eruption and You Really Got Me. Slash was blown away by Eddie Van Halen's incredible guitar riffs which further encouraged him to master the guitar. Another of his teachers at the same music school at Fairfax inspired him after hearing him play tunes by Led Zeppelin and Cream on electric guitar. After he heard this, he knew that's what he wanted to do. Slash continued to expand his love of different bands such as Finn Lizzy and Motorhead, but wasn't a fan of glam rock music beginning to emerge that Van Halen had in fact started. The first album he would buy was Led Zeppelin 1. He loved Jimmy Page's guitar riffs and blues and hard rock style and was inspired to buy a Gibson Les Paul, just like Jimmy. Seeing pictures of other stars like Keith Richards, Eric Clapton, Pete Townshend and Mike Bloomfield helped Slash make the decision on the brand and type of guitar he would choose as his first. After mastering the one-string guitar, Slash bought himself his first guitar, which was a cheap copy of a Memphis Les Paul, and began walking around with it everywhere strapped onto his back. All of a sudden, he began to get noticed by other students, and having a guitar earned him more attention off girls. Due to the guitar being a cheap replica, it wouldn't last long, but it was perfect to get him by in the meantime. He also found a music book called How to Play Rock Guitar, and it came with an audio CD that was narrated that taught him how to play. The book featured images of a range of beautiful looking electric guitars, and some of the best guitarists of all time, including Mike Bloomfield. Jimi Hendrix, Jeff Beck, and Eric Clapton. Slash flicked through the pages excitably and came across the tabs section and put a simple blues lick together consisting of three notes and his world changed forever. He describes this moment as the eye-opening, mind-blowing moment that inspired his love for the guitar for the rest of his life. Slash then practiced continuously for 12 hours at a time and was determined to master it just like he had done with BMXing. Slash later attended Beverly Hills High School, which would be the host of several future stars, such as Lenny Kravis, Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and R&B drummer Zorro. During his high school years, Slash would trial a number of different guitars, and even tried a Fender Stratocaster, but preferred the feel and sound of the Gibson Les Paul, and never looked back. At age 16, Slash received his first tattoo, which would become his favourite, located on his right arm, of his alter ego he likes to call Shirley. Around this time, Slash also had his first number of gigs, performing at school parties, but he would play his first official gig at a club called Owl's Bar, jamming with a cover band that played a mix of Janis Joplin, Credence Clearwater, The Beatles, The Rolling Stones and Jimi Hendrix. They were a group of guys literally just playing for fun and didn't have any career aspirations, unlike Slash. He even played at a bar mitzvah of all gigs, after being told by the girl hosting the party that they were rich and Mick Jagger was going to be there. Slash and his bandmates were getting paid a small amount of money to perform, but the opportunity was too good to refuse. They drove there to find that Mick Jagger was nowhere to be seen and they ended up getting blind drunk instead the night before the gig and were told to stay in the guest house. 
They trashed the guest house and got up to a range of mischief. And when they woke in the morning, they noticed all of the guests were arriving and they were all relatives and expecting traditional Jewish music and top 40 hits. Slash and his bandmates would shock them when they performed extremely loud covers of Deep Purple, Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin. The guests were very upset with them and were not impressed. At age 16, Slash dropped out of school and would turn his focus to starting his own band with his friend Steve Adler. Steve would switch from guitar to drums but couldn't afford to buy a kit for some time. After saving up some money, Steve bought himself a drum kit and the two called themselves Titus Sloan in 1981 where they toured small venues. In between they had a number of other projects and two years later they started another band called Road Crew in 1983, naming it after the Motorhead song We Are The Road Crew. The two began venturing out to watch other local bands and would hang out at a local pizza parlour where they would have Aerosmith on repeat on the jukebox. They attended a range of concerts from Toto to Motley Crue and it was at Motley Crue's gig at the Whiskey A Go Go that guitarist Nicky Six's performance really hit home with Slash. Originally Slash only attended the concert as some Motley Crue fangirls he liked from school had handed him out the flyers for the concert and he thought that he could get into their pants if he went. He instead enjoyed the concert and was blown away by Nicky Six's performance. At one particular gig, Slash saw a band named Hollywood Rose and was interested in their lead singer Axl Rose, known at the time as Bill, and their rhythm guitarist Izzy Stradlin. Slash had met Izzy and Axel previously after they saw an advertisement in the Recycler Trading Post that Axel was looking to start a band, but nothing would come of their first meeting, but they would run into each other on a number of occasions before joining forces. At age 19, Slash put up a notice for a bass player in the Recycler, and the first applicant turned out to be a man named Duff McKagan. Duff met up with Slash and Steve at Slash's good friend Mark Canner's pizza and deli-style restaurant. Slash, his girlfriend, and Steve waited for a considerable amount of time and were worried that no one would show up. All of a sudden, a tall man in a black trench coat walks on in with blonde and blue spiky hair. He sat down and the three got talking, talking for two hours about music. They travelled to Slash's mum's house to have a jam session as Slash showed him his basement style bedroom that was dark and where he kept his pet python. Slash picked up his acoustic guitar and Duff was speechless. As he said, Slash played like a seasoned smooth old blues musician. Duff had never heard a guitarist so young play like that and was excited to work with him. The trio sat down, sunk some vodkas, put on some motorhead and became good friends. Duff then joined their band Road Crew and they came up with the riff that would later be known as Rocket Queen for Guns N' Roses. But the band was disbanded by Slash when they struggled to find a singer for the band after trialling former Black Flag singer Ron Reyes and Steve Adler's involvement had been minimal compared to Duff and Slash's. Duff had already been in a number of bands that experienced a small cult following before moving to LA where he worked at a restaurant serving Angus beef appetizers beforehand. Duff coincidentally lived across the road from Hollywood Rose member Izzy Stradlin in a cheap apartment and would soon become bandmates. Slash at the time was producing a number of sketches of musicians including one of Steve Tyler from Aerosmith which became very popular. While Slash was working at a guitar shop, on one particular day, Izzy wandered in and asked if he had a copy of the drawing. This was the first time the two had met officially, one-on-one, -on -one, and unfortunately Slash didn't have any left for him and forgot to ask him about his band. 
1983, Slash jumped ship and joined Hollywood Rose after their guitarist and founding member Chris Webber struck lead singer Axl Rose with the headstock of his guitar live on stage. The unintentional blow caused Axl to fire Chris and Slash was hired as his replacement. Originally Slash was turned down after Axel had put an ad in the paper to find a blues influenced guitarist and Slash just kept turning out for auditions and got a spot in the lineup eventually. In 1984, Izzy Stradlin left the band for the LA Guns due to Chris Webber's sacking on just the first rehearsal of Slash's time with the band. Steve Adler was referred by Slash to replace drummer Johnny Kreese but the band disbanded shortly after playing their final show at the Troubadour. After the band disbanded, Steve was left without a band. Axel became the lead singer for another band called the LA Guns after their lead singer Mike Chagos went to prison. Izzy Stradlin recommended Axel to replace Mike after talking with his roommate and fellow lead guitarist Tracy Guns. During this time, Slash had played guitar for a band named Black Sheep and auditioned for the glam rock band Poison but turned it down as the dress code was not his style and actually came quite close to joining. Slash would have most definitely seemed out of place in glam rock attire and would have gone against his taste in music. Former lead singer of LA Guns, Mike Jagos, returned from jail and rejoined the band once more, forcing Axl Rose out of the band and leading him to revamp his former band, Hollywood Rose. Lead guitarist Tracy Guns and Izzy Stradlin followed him and they rebranded the band, Guns N' Roses. The band was born and the original members included Rose, Stradlin, Guns, drummer Rob Gardner and bass guitarist Ollie Beak. After their debut show on March 26, 1985, Ollie Beak was fired and Duff McKagan was hired as the new bass player. After just two months of performing together, Axel and Tracy got into a heated argument and split the band in two once more. Tracy Guns left and Rob Gardner soon followed, leaving Izzy to stay with his childhood friend Axel. This would work out perfectly as Slash and Steve Adler were waiting in the wings and became the classic members of the band. In June 1985, Axel, Slash, Izzy, Duff and Steve became the finalised members of Guns N' Roses and set out to conquer the world with their hard-hitting rock tunes. All five members brought a range of influences to the table, ranging from Motorhead, 10cc, Aerosmith, The Dolls, Nazareth, and Australian band, The Saints. On the 6th of June, 1985, they made their debut as the newly formed Guns N' Roses. Slash and his bandmates began playing gigs at nightclubs, including the Whiskey A Go Go, the Roxy, and the Troubadour in LA. They did an unorganised tour from Sacramento, California to Seattle, Washington, where Duff was raised. The five members travelled in two separate vehicles with their instruments in the back when they broke down on their way to Seattle and were forced into the one vehicle. Shortly after this, the second van broke down and the five members were forced to walk and hitchhike up the west coast to Seattle, taking them 40 hours to get there. When they eventually arrived, they performed receiving only 25% of their pay that they were promised at more than one show. Some shows would also be cancelled as they had arrived late. They would drive back to LA in Duff's Toyota Celica when disaster struck again, almost killing them in the process as a car ploughed into them at an intersection, causing the car to be ridden off and Steve Adler was left with a broken ankle. As Slash says, Duff's car was totaled and we could have been too. That would have been a sick twist of fate, the band dying together after we'd just gotten together. 
The gunners were forced to walk for the rest of the way on foot and by hitchhiking once again, carrying their instruments and equipment that were mostly borrowed or rented. The tour became known as the Hell Tour due to everything the band faced while travelling, but without a doubt it made them closer than ever. They would also open for some big acts including Poison, Alice Cooper, Ted Nugent, Johnny Funders, The Dead Boys, Lords of the New Church, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, Cheap Trick and metal band London. On July 26, Slash performed heavily intoxicated at the venue called The Seance where he played on but was physically ill and struggled to stay upright. During the Gunners' early days, they were heavily strapped for cash. At times they were homeless, they would often rent and borrow equipment and instruments and were all living together at one stage in a 16 by 10 foot room, located behind a guitar shop and surviving on a measly $4 a day. It was during 1985 that Slash stumbled upon a shop that sells secondhand items. The shop was located on Melrose Boulevard in Los Angeles and was called Retail Slut. He noticed an interesting black felt-top hat sitting in the front of the window and thought it looked cool, so he ventured in and picked up the hat thinking it would be a cool thing to wear around. Slash at the time had no money, so he tucked it under his arm and walked out of the shop with it, scoring the iconic hat for free. He walked next door to a vintage-style shop called Levers and Treasures that sells Native American belts and spotted one he liked that had silver-patterned conchos and again walked out with it free of charge. Slash returned to his hotel room where he made some adjustments to the belt and wrapped it around the hat and fastened it on. That night he performed with the Gunners wearing the hat for the first time live on stage at the Whiskey A Go Go. The crowd loved it and he felt it gave him a good sense of identity, so the hat stuck and became his trademark and so the legend was born. On September 28, 1985, Slash would use an official Gibson Les Paul electric guitar for the first time live, which would become his trademark guitar. He went through a number of guitars, including a 59 Les Paul, before finding the right one, along with the perfect amplifier. He combined a Gibson Les Paul and the Marshall amplifier, which produced a perfect crisp sound that Slash was looking for, becoming a trademark of his. Slash describes his special Gibson Les Paul as a vehicle that allows him to express his feelings of anxiety, anger, passion and even sex. While on tour, Guns N' Roses played early versions of Welcome to the Jungle, Reckless Life, Don't Cry and It's So Easy and by the end of the year they had around 14 songs written. They would regularly perform covers of Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel where an American band by Grand Funk Railroad Good Night Tonight by Wings, Nice Boys by Rose Tattoo, ACDC's Whole Lot of Rosie, Aerosmith's Mama Kin, The Rolling Stones' Jumping Jack Flash, and songs from Hollywood Rose and LA Guns, in order to fill the set list and keep the crowd entertained. On March 28, 1986, Guns N' Roses performed their first show after being signed to a record deal by Geffen Records three days earlier. David Geffen was good friends with Slash's mother, Ola, but didn't even know that Slash was even signed under him in his band Guns N' Roses. American music producer Tim Zutort went and saw the Gunners perform at the Troubadour, and after just two songs, he walked out and called Geffen, knowing they were going to be huge, and that they needed to be signed ASAP. That night, Slash passed out on the floor after doing a large amount of heroin, cocaine, and drinking on top of that but Zutort didn't mind, thinking they were great. The Gunners originally knocked back an offer from Chrysalis Records, which was double Geffen's offer, but they wanted to change the band's sound and image, and the Gunners weren't having any of it. 
Geffen gave the band $70,000 up front, and this could only mean three things. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Around this time, Slash had begun getting heavily involved in drugs, and the recording of their first album at Rumbo Studios was stalled due to these issues. Slash blew most of his cut of the upfront payment on drugs, and after being given an ultimatum, he chose the band and took a small step back from drugs, but not entirely. Signing the contract didn't go smoothly though, with Axel causing a scene and storming out after he thought someone had taken his contact lenses, so he couldn't read the contract properly. Slash soon found them for him, and the contract was officially signed. Later in August 1986, Aerosmith's manager Tim Collins was approached to become Guns N' Roses manager. But after the Guns N' Roses boys used his account at the bar, ordering loads of drinks and trashing the place, Collins knew they were going to be too much of a handful. Guns N' Roses instead assigned New Zealander Alan Niven as their band manager. Guns N' Roses would open for Ted Nugent in Santa Monica during August, and on the 23rd of October, Slash and the Gunners would perform as a support act for one of their idols, Alice Cooper, at the Arlington Theatre in Santa Barbara. There was only one problem, as Axel was left off the entry list and wasn't allowed to enter the theatre, which forced the band to perform without him, and Duff and Izzy were required to sing most of the tracks. In December, they released their first EP of tracks called Live Like a Suicide. It featured two covers of Rose Tattoo's Nice Boys and Aerosmith's Mama Kin and two originals called Reckless Life and Move to the City. The tracks featured a fake live stadium crowd scenario as it was cheaper to record in a studio and was done in order to make it sound like a live recording. The EP cover featured an image of Axl Rose and Duff and the earlier Guns N' Roses logo designed by Slash himself with his sketching expertise. Only 10,000 vinyl records were released of the EP and it is now a rare record. The Gunners went on a non-stop action tour for a total of three years, performing 58 shows from 1985 to 1987. On the 10th of May 1987, they performed their final show of the tour, and it would be one of their last shows they did on the club scene. Over the course of the tour, fans were treated to early unfinished versions of Sweet Child O' Mine, Night Train, Ain't Going Down, and Mr. Brownstone. In June 1987, the Gunners made their European debut in London in front of a hostile and heavily intoxicated crowd. The crowd continuously hurled items and objects at the band as they tried to perform, with Axel threatening to walk off. It was a disastrous debut back in Slash's home country. The critics were quick to jump on the band, and from here on out they had it in for them for their attitude and bad boy antics. Guns N' Roses' first album was a slow process due to a range of distractions and Axl Rose trying to perfect his vocals line by line. The Gunners chose Mike Klink as their producer, as he was the cheapest option at the time, but he did a mighty effort, putting in 18 hours straight a day for a month, trying to get the album perfect. Slash would play an overdub in the morning and afternoon, and struggled at first to capture the sound he wanted, until he plugged his Gibson Les Paul into a rented Marshall amplifier. He found the perfect formula to match his desired sound. Slash enjoyed the sound of his guitar with the Marshall amplifier so much that he tried to keep it and told the rental company that it had been stolen but was later repossessed after the gunner's roadie had brought the amp to a rehearsal at the same place where Slash had rented it from. Slash would later find a replacement Marshall amp to finish the album off. The album would finally be released on the 21st of July 1987 calling it Appetite for Destruction. 
Appetite for Destruction was released and initially sold poorly, only selling a total of 200,000 records, as MTV and radio were afraid to play them due to the heavy style of music and their lyrics referring to sex and drugs. The man that helped them get signed to Geffen Records, Tom Zutort, was responsible for giving them the final push, landing them a spot on MTV for one sole video slot to play Welcome to the Jungle. When it was played, Tom woke to find missed calls telling him the song was massive and the phone lines had blown up with people ringing in, praising the song and wanting to know more about them. Appetite for Destruction became a massive overnight worldwide success. It topped the mainstream album charts in New Zealand and the US, where it sold a massive 18 million copies, going 18 times platinum. It made the top 10 in another 12 countries, including Australia, the UK and Canada, where it went diamond, selling over 1 million copies. It became the best-selling debut album of all time in the States, and sold a massive 30 million copies worldwide. Guns N' Roses' sound was fresh and more appealing to hard rock and metal fans, tired of glam rock acts like Warrant, Poison, Cinderella and Bon Jovi. The critics at the time of release were harsh and against the heavy metal sound and screaming voice of Axl Rose, but in hindsight it became a classic album that is now praised by critics. Early tracks that were debuted back when Tracy Guns was still in the band, instead of Slash, would make the album, including Anything Goes and Think About You but with Slash's insane ability on guitar, he made them his own. Slash wrote the track Rocket Queen with Duff and Steve back when he was in the band Road Crew and it was previously unfinished. Axl Rose added his own lyrics for the track, saying it was about a sexual experience with a woman. He wanted a pornographic sexual sound to accompany the track and brought Steve Adler's ex-girlfriend into the studio and recorded himself having sex with her for 30 minutes. And this can be heard in one particular part of the song where the band play along without vocals. Adler's ex-girlfriend wanted revenge for him cheating on her and this was her way of getting back at him. Their biggest hits from the album were Welcome to the Jungle, Sweet Child O' Mine and Paradise City. They all had great commercial success and topped the charts on various rock charts around the world. Sweet Child O' Mine went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in the US and was a top 10 hit in New Zealand and the UK and sold over 1 million copies in both the US and the UK. It featured one of the most insane solos and guitar riffs ever heard. Paradise City was their second biggest commercial success on the album, reaching number one in Ireland and the top 10 in 10 countries, including the US, UK and New Zealand. It also sold over 1 million copies in the UK. Slash said the song was written in the back of their rented tour van as they travelled on their way back from a gig in San Francisco. The band were drinking, laughing and playing their instruments when Slash came up with the opening riff on an acoustic guitar. He began humming a tune as Duff and Izzy joined in playing guitar and Axel joined in singing Take Me Down to the Paradise City, followed by Slash singing Where the Grass is Green and the Girls are Pretty. Axel repeated the first line once more before Slash sung where the girls are fat and they got big titties. Axel finished with Take Me Home. Slash loved the second line he came up with, but the band opted for his first one instead. Slash then closed the song with a strong riff and solo that carries the song. It would go on to become Slash's favourite song with the Gunners and one he heavily contributed to. After the success of the track, Slash was approached by the owner of Geffen Records, David Geffen, after finding out that he was the son of his good friend Ola. 
Geffen asked Slash if he wanted to do a solo remix version of Sweet Child O' Mine, potentially luring him away from the rock band and looking to exploit the 22-year-old guitarist for his own personal gain. He explained that Slash would make a lot more money, but Slash flat out refused, saying he doesn't give a shit about the money. This was one of the reasons Slash had previously avoided admitting that he was the son of Ola. Welcome to the Jungle was written within a three hour period in Slash's basement room at his mother's house. Slash came up the riff before Duff joined in and Axel began coming up with the lyrics for the track. The music video for the track features a cool, calm and collected Slash effortlessly playing a heavy rock riff in his trademark top hat, black curly locks flowing from under his top hat, leather pants, black leather jacket and his famous Gibson Les Paul, an image that would make him iconic in the eyes of the world. The music video in modern times would reach around 376 million views on YouTube and appears the track has gotten more and more popular as it ages, featuring in countless films, TV shows and has become a popular sporting anthem. The biggest track on the album was in fact Sweet Child O' Mine and features Slash's insane guitar riff and solo in this 6 minute classic and is what makes the song so memorable along with its catchy lyrics and superb vocals from frontman Axl Rose. It is now a song that Slash despises, despite the amount of success and notoriety it brought the guitarist. He says he hates what it represents, and for him, that is string skipping. String skipping is a method of achieving a guitar sound that is different from more traditional solo riff styles. In more traditional styles, the guitarist will often play several notes on one string, then move to the adjacent one, improvising on the fretboard in a linear manner. In string skipping, as the name implies, a string is often skipped during the riff. Essentially, this technique is used to introduce larger intervals that are usually common in guitar melodies. Slash thought of the technique as a bit of a joke at the time, and was rehearsing one time with drummer Steve Adler as Slash began playing a circus-like tune and pulling silly faces at Adler. The two laughed, but Izzy liked it and asked him to play it again. Soon after, Izzy and Duff began playing along to it, and something that was a bit of fun initially became something else. Axel overheard them playing, and wrote lyrics about his girlfriend to match the song. Slash was annoyed at this, and wasn't a fan of them changing his harmless fun riff into something more serious. Despite all this, it would become the Gunners' most recognised and celebrated song of their catalogue. One of their producers, Spencer Profer, suggested they add a breakdown, which includes a solo from each member and their instruments at a particular part of the song. The band were unsure how to go about it, so Axel started singing, Where do we go now? Where do we go? And each member played their solo, and Slash goes into a high-energy guitar solo that would have everyone up and wanting to play air guitar. His ability to change hand and finger positions in milliseconds and keep the rhythm flowing is insane. He makes it look effortless, despite the difficulty to play the riff as well as Slash does. To make the track more attractive to MTV and radio stations, the track was cut short, leaving out Slash's solo. Axel and Slash were both frustrated with this, with Axel explaining that it is his favourite part of the song, and there is no reason for cutting it other than to fit commercials in to make money from them. Sweet Child O' Mine ranks number 37 on the greatest guitar riffs of all time and has been ranked highly on a range of countdowns and lists for both greatest song of all time and riff. It has now sold almost 3 million copies in the States, alone as a single. One of the most popular songs that wasn't released as a worldwide single was Mr. Brownstone. 
The song was written by Slash and Izzy about their addiction to heroin and their tolerance to the drug, as the lyrics state. I used to do a little, but a little wouldn't do, so the little got more and more. Slash and Izzy wrote the lyrics on the back of a grocery bag in Izzy's apartment. It represented Brownstone being another name for heroin. It was the first song written after being signed by Geffen Records. For the track My Michelle, Slash swapped out his Gibson Les Paul that he used for the entire album for a 1960s Gibson SG, as it had a deeper, darker sound to suit the song. The song was written by Axl Rose about Slash's former girlfriend's best friend, Michelle Young. Slash attended junior high school with Michelle, and she had a wayward life involving drugs, the death of her mother, and her father's role in the pornographic industry. She had recently gotten clean, and she was a friend of the band's, so they wanted to pay tribute to her. Axel originally penned a heartfelt, romantic ballad for her, after she expressed she would love to have someone write a song about her. Axel thought it didn't capture the honest detailing of her life, and opted for the version that was released, but Slash was worried she wouldn't like it, and that it might offend her. Axel stuck to his gut feeling and released the darker, more honest version, and she loved the finished product, and she has now moved away from that troubled behaviour of her past. Guns N' Roses took Appetite for Destruction on the road, performing 176 shows across North America, Europe, the UK, Japan, Australia, and New Zealand. They opened for a range of acts, ranging from The Cult, Motley Crue, Aerosmith, Alice Cooper, and Iron Maiden, ticking off performances with some of their idols. The Gunners toured from August 1987 to December 1988, with Slash wearing the same pair of leather skin tight pants for the whole duration of the tour. During November 1987, the Gunners were set to support Motley Crue at their first show of their tour when Slash and Steve Adler came to the rescue of Motley Crue guitarist Nicky Six after he had overdosed on heroin and cocaine. He had overdosed in Slash's hotel room, but Slash wasn't in at the time, but his girlfriend was present and called out for help. When paramedics arrived, he was barely breathing, and Six was pronounced dead for a total of two minutes on the way to hospital, until paramedics were able to bring him back through adrenaline injections. Slash's girlfriend, himself, and Steve had saved the life of one of their all-time icons. It should have been a wake-up call for Slash and Steve seeing such an iconic legend in their eyes almost die in front of them, but that didn't stop them. Steve Adler's heroin addiction now became a massive issue and his performance on stage started to worsen. On one particular night, during an opening performance for Alice Cooper, he injured his hand, forcing him to miss four shows and be replaced by Fred Curry. He would injure his hand once again when he was wasted and lost a fight with a lamppost, once again fracturing his hand. The shows performing as a support act for Alice Cooper were a dream come true for Slash as he looked up to the dark and gothic hard rock musician known for hits like Schools Out, Poison and Welcome to My Nightmare. Slash had adopted the iconic top hat look from Alice Cooper after Alice had worn one during his early days. Alice would later reveal he gave up on the look after Slash made it his own thing and pulled the look off better than he ever did. Slash revealed to his manager that he wanted to be recognisable and the top hat was a way for the introverted Slash to show off some of his personality and he secretly wanted to be an iconic rock star. Slash revealed in a much later interview about his iconic top hat that he liked the fact that the hat dragged his black curly locks downward covering his face as he likes to hide behind his hair as he suffers from anxiety. He states that despite loving being on stage, he hates making eye contact with people in the crowd as it freaks him out and makes him feel uncomfortable. 
The iconic Slash look would also consist of his nose piercing, tattoos, leather jacket and skin tight leather pants, his dark shades and a cigarette often hanging out of the corner of his mouth. On occasions, Slash would be playing guitar on stage and his cigarette would fall out of his mouth and land in between his stomach and the guitar and would give him significant burns as he would usually perform without a shirt. In February 1988, Guns N' Roses headlined for the first time in North America but was still mainly opening for bands like Iron Maiden. Axel's attitude started to get worse and he would often threaten to walk out on the band which he eventually did one day and returned three days later. He also began to have throat problems and trouble with his voice and the band started to become frustrated with him as they were forced to cancel touring for the rest of their shows with Iron Maiden. In July 1988, the Gunners opened for Aerosmith on a number of occasions, and Aerosmith's manager, Tim Collins, recalls that by the end of their leg, performing under Aerosmith, that Guns N' Roses were massive. They exploded onto the popular music scene, and Rolling Stone magazine had turned up to interview Aerosmith, and ended up putting Guns N' Roses on the front cover, labelling them the hard rock heroes, and suddenly, the opening act was bigger than Aerosmith. Despite their sudden rise to fame, the band was still relatively poor. Choosing to spend most of their cash on drugs and alcohol, they were still travelling in second-hand vans and were living out of broken old suitcases, held together by gaffer tape and twine. As a gift at the end of the tour, Aerosmith's manager bought the Gunners new suitcases, which their own manager took offence to. On one particular night, on August 20, things would take a turn for the worst when Guns N' Roses stepped onto stage at the Monsters of Rock Festival held at Donington Castle in England. Throughout the Gunners' performance, waves of fans began pushing towards the front of the stage on three separate occasions. Despite Axel threatening to walk off stage and stop the performance if they continued, the crowd ignored this warning and pushed too far, violently crushing two fans to death in the process. It shook the boys up and Slash was heavily affected by it. They copped mass scrutiny for their antics and were blamed for the deaths by the media, despite their pleads to the crowd to stop. The Gunners would take a short break after this stressful accident and wouldn't return fully to tour until late September, opening for In Excess, despite a one-off performance at the MTV Music Awards. On the 29th of November 1988, the Gunners released their second studio album called Guns N' Roses Lies, or also known as Just Lies. Technically it was an extended play, but was commercially treated as an album. It featured a mix of hard rock, metal and mostly acoustic tracks. It wasn't a massive commercial success, but sold over 6 million copies in the US and received mixed reviews. The one single released, known as Patience, was the most successful track of the album. It reached the top 10 in 7 countries, including the US and the UK, and reached number 16 in Australia. The song was played using three acoustic guitars, including Slash on one of those, along with Duff and Izzy, while Axel sings and whistles. At this stage, Steve Adler was dealing poorly on drugs, and was the only member left off of the recording of the track. Adler appeared in the music video, but it would become the last time he was seen in a clip with the band. One particular track from the album, called One in a Million, stirred up a hornet's nest amongst the band members, fans and critics. The song was condemned for Axel's use of offensive connotations towards homosexuals, immigrants and racism towards the black community. He later defended his own lyrics, saying that how come black people can call each other niggers, but white people can't say it. 
Slash was somewhat offended by this song, as he had a black mother himself, and felt a little uncomfortable with the band being labelled as racist because of Axel's lyrics. The most offensive line from the song read, Police and niggers, that's right, get out of my way. Don't need to buy none of your gold chains today. I don't need no bracelets clamped in front of my back. Just need my ticket. Till then, won't you cut me some slack? And a second verse is extremely controversial, stating, Immigrants and faggots, they make no sense to me. They come to our country and think they'll do as they please. Like start some mini Iran or spread some fucking disease. They talk so many goddamn ways, it's all Greek to me. Slash later told Rolling Stone magazine in an interview, when Axel first came up with the song and really wanted to do it, I said I didn't think it was very cool. I don't regret doing one in a million. I just regret what we've been through because of it and the way people have perceived our personal feelings. Around this time, Axel and Slash's relationship started to be tested and he would later reveal that this song did indeed offend him and that it was not something he wanted to be a part of. Despite all the controversy and distaste around the track One in a Million, the album Lies managed to reach the top 5 in the US and Guns N' Roses would become the first band in 15 years to have two albums simultaneously in the top 5 in the US at one time. The sudden success allowed the cash to finally flow in. Slash bought himself his first car, which he previously couldn't afford. He added to his guitar collection and pet snake collection that already included a range of pythons, boas, emerald tree boas, blood pythons, Burmese pythons, carpet pythons, African rock pythons, reticulated pythons and anacondas, where he would have a python in every room of his place. On the 18th of October 1989, Guns N' Roses would perform as the opener for the Rolling Stones as Axl Rose delivered a message directed at Slash, Steve and Izzy over their heroin addiction and excessive drug use. Axl said, I hate to do this on stage, but I tried every other fucking way, and unless certain people in this band get their shit together, these will be the last Guns N' Roses shows you'll ever fucking see, because I'm tired of too many people in this organisation dancing with Mr. Goddamn Brownstone. Slash was furious at Axel for announcing this to the public, but did vow to quit the drugs along with Steve and Izzy. The relationship between Slash, Izzy, Duff and Steve started to grow, but they all began to dislike the attitude and strict drill sergeant attitude that Axel was bringing to the group. The members of the band began venturing off performing with a range of acts, either solo or without the group as a whole. Slash performed a number of times as a guest with Ozzy Osbourne, Great White and a range of other acts, usually with Steve Adler also tagging along. Slash, Steve and Duff would often hang out together, while Izzy and Axel remained close, performing with Tom Petty and the Rolling Stones during their tour with them. Jealousy, competitiveness and egos started to derail the Gunners' future. In January 1990, Slash would appear at the AMA Music Awards, wasted on stage alongside Duff, on behalf of Guns N' Roses, accepting the award for Favourite Heavy Metal and Hard Rock Album, for Appetite for Destruction, and Favourite Heavy Metal and Hard Rock Artist. Let's meet those Heavy Metal nominees. Appetite for Destruction, Guns N' Roses. Got to feel good, Motley Crue. Skid Row, Skid Row. And the winner is... Guns and Roses, Appetite for Destruction. All right, uh, so listen, we're, we, 
God, we didn't even expect this. It's like, really, you just said, come down, hang out at the show and stuff. So we thought we'd come down and hang out. It'd be two hours, we'd hang out and shit. Have a drink on us. Thank you very much. And, and the, the winner, winner is... is... Guns and Roses. What do we say? All right. Listen, I want to say a couple things I didn't get to say last time, right? I want to thank fucking... Oops. Oops. All right. Doug Goldstein, Alan Niven. All right, listen, Tom Zutat for finding us, Alan Niven for fucking getting us there. Um, Doug Goldstein. The next month, Guns N' Roses hired keyboard player Dizzy Reed to become the sixth member of the band for their upcoming albums. Due to Slash's good friend Steve Adler's heroin addiction worsening and his constant lying that he was clean, Adler was made to sign a contract that forfeited his rights within the band if he didn't kick his drug habits. This left him with a 30 day probation period to get straight and beat his addiction otherwise he would be replaced. This was heavily enforced by Axel, and Adler was eventually fired when he didn't meet his contract, further fueling Slash's dislike for Axel. In April 1990, Slash and Duff joined forces with Iggy Pop to provide their instrumentals for the album Brick by Brick. On the 7th of this month, Steve Adler played his final show with the Gunners. Unfortunately succumbing to his addictions, he was no longer able to consistently play and was more of a liability. Slash was sad to see his good friend go, but the show had to go on. Adler would officially leave Guns N' Roses on the 11th of July and was replaced by the former drummer of the cult, Matt Sorum. Adler would take this news really hard and he put himself into a cocaine-induced stroke and tried to end his own life, luckily surviving. Although sadly, he would go on to overdose around a frightening 28 times in his lifetime. Slash and Axel's communication became limited and they could not usually be in the same room as one another, working on music in separate studios over the phone, making it extremely difficult. Slash and some of the other band members disliked Axel's new approach with the live shows as he brought in horns and an orchestra for tracks like November Rain. Slash thought it took away the metal aspect of the band and he felt like the band was becoming too commercial and starting to slip away from its original roots. Soon after, Axel decided to get the band to sign an agreement that if the band broke up, that the license would go to him, so he could go on with the same name, but with a different lineup. and if they didn't sign, he would break up the band anyway. Slash and the other band members felt like they had no choice, and signed the contract, later being confirmed in 1997. In May 1991, Gunners manager Alan Niven was fired by Axl Rose against the wishes of his bandmates due to a personal dispute the two had. Axl refused to record any further material during the process for Use Your Illusion unless Niven was replaced. Doug Goldstein would become Niven's replacement after working with the band under Niven since 1987. Goldstein had previously worked for Van Halen and Black Sabbath in a different role and was a former security guard for Air Supply. On the 17th of June, Axel started a trend that would eventually bring the band to its end after he failed to show up to a show in New York on time. When he appeared on stage, he apologised to the crowd, but his bandmates weren't pleased. During a performance of Patience, Axel had items thrown at him before telling the crowd members to bash anyone seen throwing stuff or he'll leave. 
Axel's attitude while rock and roll started to wear thin on fans and his bandmates. Just weeks later, on the 2nd of July, at the Riverport Amphitheatre in front of a 20,000 strong crowd, Skid Row opens the show before the Gunners come onto stage, with Axel clearly in a tense mood. Not too long into the show, Axel lashes out at a fan during a performance of Rocket Queen for taking a picture of him and ordered security to kick them out, saying, Hey, take him out, take him out, after security refused to intervene, not seeing any problem with what the fan had done. Axel took matters into his own hands, as he said over the microphone, I'll take him out goddammit. Axel chucked his hat to the side and leaped into the crowd towards the fan to attack him. Axel dove into the side of the fan, hitting his target directly and knocking him over a row of chairs, before jumping on top of him and attempting to wrestle the camera from his grasp. He then got up yelling and swearing at the fan, known as Stump, and swung a punch and connected on one of his security guard's faces. Axel had lost one of his contact lenses, which made him even more furious in the process before returning to the stage and then condemned the security guards for not doing anything and said over the microphone, well thanks to the lame ass security, I'm going home, as he slammed the microphone down and stormed off stage. Meanwhile, Slash and the band kept playing a running beat when Axel had leapt into the crowd, but then with Slash and the band unsure what to do when Axel walked off, they eventually followed him. The fan had badly injured himself and ruptured a disc in his back when getting tackled onto the chairs. He was attended to by paramedics, but debris began flying around when the house lights were switched on, signifying that the show was over, which only annoyed the already hostile crowd. A riot quickly started with fans fighting with one another and the security guards, while others wanted to go after Axel himself. Axel took himself backstage and trashed the backstage area and dressing room in a fit of rage. People were taken out on stretchers and badly injured, with chairs being ripped off of their adjustments and thrown through the air like a frisbee, collecting one security guard in the head and cutting his head open. Video screens were torn down, looting of guitars and other equipment occurred, and fires were lit within the amphitheatre. The crowd became so violent and reckless that security instructed the gunners that their best option was to leave and cut their losses with their expensive equipment as it became too dangerous. Slash recalls being a bit frightened after seeing how many people were badly injured and seeing chairs flying like missiles. The police arrived and took over the situation and Axel was charged for inciting a riot. The owners of Riverport Amphitheatre were left with the cost to rebuild, which was over six figures in damages. Slash was frustrated with Axel for his overreaction and the band didn't want to stop the show, but it was too dangerous to go back out as it was pure pandemonium. Much later in 1993, the matter was settled in court with the fan known as Stump receiving a small sum and an autograph of the man himself, Axel Rose. At the Gunners' very next show in Texas, Axel warned the crowd before beginning the show that if anyone throws anything or is out of line, that they will just leave. The next month, on the 13th of August 1991, the Gunners performed as the headline act for their Get In The Ring tour with Skid Row as their opener in Helsinki, Finland. 
Just an hour into the show, and only a quarter of the way through the hit, Welcome to the Jungle, Axel casually walks off stage, leaving his bandmates to fend for themselves. Slash and his bandmates were forced to play the rest of the track and the next song, 14 Years, as instrumentals and improvised with a drum solo and guitar solo from Slash, wondering if he would return at all. After around 25 minutes, Axel returned to the stage, confusing both the fans and his bandmates. Axel began turning up late to rehearsals and arriving just before they were set to go on stage, opting to gamble or getting sidetracked by something else other than the band as his main priority. On August 19th, a fan shot a firecracker onto stage in Copenhagen, Denmark, and Axel threatened to cancel the show if that person didn't come forward. After a 15-minute break, the band commenced. The next day, the band would land in Oslo, Norway, without Axel, as they couldn't find him anywhere. Later that evening, Axel's assistant calls and says that he is in Paris, France, and that he won't make tomorrow's show. Slash and the rest of the band were forced to cancel their show the next evening. Axel returned to the band on the 24th of August for a show in Germany, four days after deserting his bandmates for Paris. On the 31st of August, they played at Wembley in England, breaking the record for tickets sold after release at the venue. There were many unforgettable moments for Slash though, as he appeared heavily intoxicated on stage on one occasion, ripping his leather pants, and another where he forgot the rhythm to welcome to the jungle completely, confusing his bandmates and their fans. On the 17th of September 1991, Guns N' Roses released a double album called Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2. The band had a total of 36 songs they wanted to release over 4 CDs, but were told it would be too expensive for fans, so they opted for 2 separate CDs instead. The double album brought in a total of 14 million copies sold in the US alone, with fans rushing out to buy the two at the same time. It proved to be a masterstroke and an influx of Gunners hits made the charts. Use Your Illusion 2 was slightly more popular than 1. Use Your Illusion 1 sold 685,000 copies in its first week in the US and debuted at number 2, while Use Your Illusion 2 sold 770,000 copies and debuted at number 1. Guns N' Roses' number 1 and number 2 slots on the charts gave them the record as the only act ever to achieve this until 2004 when R&B artist Nelly did the same. New drummer Matt Sorum's inclusion on the album gave it a different sound and it was more popular amongst the Australian audience this time around. Use Your Illusion 1 debuted at number 2 in Australia, the UK, New Zealand and Austria and went to number 1 in Canada, while Use Your Illusion 2 went to number 1 in Australia, the UK, New Zealand, Austria and number 2 in Canada, Germany, Norway and Sweden. Both albums received positive reviews, but some critics were still against the Gunners for their antics outside the studio. After the release of these albums, Axel would be charged for attacking his neighbour with a wine bottle in a domestic altercation in West Hollywood. While the other band members were struggling with drug issues, Axel's alcohol problem began to escalate and Slash would later be seen on the front cover of Rolling Stone magazine talking about his relationship with drugs and Axel himself. It now became obvious to the fans that the two were bound to butt heads eventually and that there was a rift in the band. Slash would have a hand in co-writing six tracks from Use Your Illusion 1, including Garden of Eden, Perfect Crime, Bad Apples, Dust and Bones, Don't Damn Me and Coma, and three tracks on Use Your Illusion 2, including Get In The Ring, Locomotive and the brilliant hit song Civil War. 
The biggest hits from Use Your Illusion 1 included Live and Let Die, Don't Cry, and the mega hit November Rain. Live and Let Die was a cover of the Paul McCartney and Wings track and managed to go to number one in New Zealand and Finland and made the top 10 in four other countries, including the UK, Ireland, Australia and Norway. Slash and Axel came up with the idea together to record the track as they both loved the song. They tried it in the studio with the other bandmates and it was perfect for their heavy style. The music video was released around December 1991 and would become the last time Izzy Stradlin would be seen in Guns N' Roses. The music video now stands at 63 million views on YouTube and features live performances of the band along with images of Slash and the Gunners members floating around the screen. The video would seemingly appear as a farewell for Izzy. Don't Cry was another big hit for the Gunners, as it reached number one in four countries, including Portugal, Ireland, Finland and Poland. It also peaked within the top ten in twelve countries, including Australia, New Zealand, the UK and the US. It features Blind Melon lead singer Shannon Hoon, and the music video features Axel going through a difficult time in his relationship. It also displays Slash driving a car erratically with a cigarette in his mouth before going off an embankment with a female passenger riding with him. The female passenger was seen in the video hitting Slash, was actually forcefully hitting him for real, and Slash was truly trying to fend her off as he tried to steer. The music video now has over 571 million views on YouTube, and the song itself features some deep, heavy blues-style riffs and a brilliant solo performed by Slash. The biggest single from the album was called November Rain and was a change of style for the band as it was a rock ballad that featured Axel on the piano. Slash and his bandmates weren't very excited about the change in style, but Axel's vision was to have an orchestra and include the piano. The song was a massive success and went to number one in Poland and would become the longest charting song in history within the top 10 in Australia, remaining there for 22 weeks and remained in the German charts for a total of 51 weeks. It would end the year as Australia and New Zealand's second best-selling single, despite peaking at number 5 and 7 respectively. It would also become the longest song in terms of duration to reach the top 10 in the US, totaling almost 9 minutes in length, and eclipsing songs like Stairway to Heaven. The music video, which now stands at 1.3 billion views on YouTube, portrays Axel getting married with Slash as his best man. Four minutes into the video, Slash appears walking out of the church, surrounded by graves and a dusty landscape. Slash walks out confidently with his famous Gibson Les Paul guitar, a cigarette hanging from his mouth, and an unbuttoned jacket, portraying one of the most iconic images in all of rock music, as he plays a beautiful solo, appearing lost in his performance as the camera pans around him from in front and up above. Despite Slash not being a fan of this style of music, he produces one of his best performances, and the emotion radiates from his guitar with every note he plays. Slash did however comment on the negative direction Axel had them following, as he said, We got into these huge production videos, and by November rain, it was too much, just too involved. At the end of the day, it was a great video, but that's when I started realising that it was getting out of hand. On one particular song called Double Talk and Jive, Slash plays a flamenco style guitar solo for 5 minutes during live performances and is a callback to the earliest guitar he ever picked up, which was a Spanish flamenco guitar with one string that he borrowed from his grandma. 
In the track Coma, Slash and Axel wrote the song about both of their overdoses and would become the Gunners' longest song they would ever include on a record, lasting just over 10 minutes long, and also doesn't feature a chorus. The track features the sounds of the hospital and a real defibrillator. Slash wrote the music to the track while taking heroin after the Appetite for Destruction tour with Izzy in their apartment that they were sharing. Due to the personalisation of the track, it would not feature on a Gunners set list for 23 years after their tour in 1993. Axel admits that the song Coma was more Slash's doing, as Slash revealed, I wrote Coma in my heroin delirium. That's a song that I'm still proud of. There's not a lot of technique, it's a pretty straight up kind of Slash approach. But the thing that's really interesting was the vamp out, which was a circular rotating chord progression that never ended. The same chord progression every time, but it just kept changing key. That was my mathematical music discovery. I just stumbled on it, and it's very much me doing my thing, but it worked. Use Your Illusion 2 was the more popular of the two albums, and featured a range of popular tracks such as Yesterday's, Civil War, You Could Be Mine, and Knocking on Heaven's Door. Slash recalls most of the songs were written using acoustic guitars at Slash's house known as the Walnut House within a couple of nights. The album took some time to finish as the final mix had to be started from scratch. After Slash had found a notepad of their producers named Bob Clearmountain, who was planning on removing Matt Sorum's drum patterns and replacing them with samples. The band quickly fired Clearmountain after discovering this and hired Sex Pistols producer Bill Price where they were required to start again. Civil War managed to peak at number 1 in Poland and number 2 in Spain, while reaching number 11 in the UK. It was a fairly popular song in regards to radio airtime and features as a protest song that reached number 4 on the US mainstream rock billboard chart. Slash wrote the riff before the Appetite for Destruction tour and he and Duff used it as a warm-up and pre-rehearsal soundcheck before Axel decided to put lyrics to it one day. Yesterday's became a popular chart topper, reaching the top 10 in 7 countries. You Could Be Mine was their next big hit, reaching number 1 in Finland and Spain and the top 5 in 13 countries, including Australia, the UK, New Zealand and a range of European countries. While the earthy cover of Bob Dylan's Knocking on Heaven's Door features Slash strumming up a beautiful masterpiece on his Gibson Les Paul in combination with Axel's great vocals. The track would chart well in the Netherlands, Belgium and Ireland where the track went to number one while it made the top five in five other countries including the UK and New Zealand, both peaking at number two. Use Your Illusion 2, however, would overall be light on in terms of writing credits for Slash, as Axel was more inclined to do the album his way, with the two struggling to see eye to eye regularly. While the track Estrange was written by Axel Rose, it would include the epic guitar work from Slash, which Axel does credit him for, making the song even better. The music video for Estranged, that worked as a trilogy with November Rain and Don't Cry, would feature Axl Rose's Malibu mansion and was seen as a bit of a bragging moment that turned many against him, including Soundgarden lead singer Chris Cornell. Cornell said in relation to the video, who the fuck does he think he is going to honestly connect with besides Donald Trump? Cornell told Request Magazine in 1994, who else is going to give a shit about the fact that he can afford that kind of attention? It goes beyond decadence. It's spitting in the face of the people that have put you there. I was offended by it, and I don't get offended by much. Cornell wasn't the only one, 
as his bandmates and Slash started to despise the man Axel was becoming. The Use Your Illusion tour would begin back in January 1991 and would wrap up in July 1993. It would become a tour that took too much out of the band and its members as relationships and friendships were tested and broken. The Gunners performed 194 shows out of 209 scheduled shows across South America, North America, the UK, Europe, Japan, Australia, New Zealand and for the first time Israel. Several shows were cancelled due to Axel's antics, such as outspoken rants, stage walk-offs and late arrivals, as the band would slowly collapse around him. This would all be compiled when former Guns N' Roses drummer and good friend of Slash, Stephen Adler, attempted to sue the band in October of 1991, claiming they were the reason he had gotten addicted to drugs. Just a month later on the 7th of November, Izzy Stradlin shocks the band and quits becoming the second classic member to leave the band since Adler's dismissal. Izzy was sick and tired of his good friend Axel's control over the band, his inability to not show up to rehearsals or gigs on time, and Axel's ego. Izzy also disliked Slash and the band's constant drug and alcohol use as he had recently sobered up and gotten clean. Izzy's replacement would be Gilby Clark of the band Kills for Frills. He was known to the band as he would gig at the same venues as the Gunners in their early days. During the middle of the tour, Guns N' Roses performed at the Freddie Mercury Memorial and Tribute Concert for AIDS Awareness on the 20th of April 1992. Slash performed an opening version of Tie Your Mother Down with the remaining members of Queen and Def Leppard singer Joe Elliott. Slash was seen alongside Queen's guitarist Brian May, which was an epic moment to see the two great guitarists come together. Slash came jamming onto stage with his Gibson Les Paul in hand, cigarette in his mouth, and wearing nothing but his famous leather skin tight pants as the crowd went nuts. Guns N' Roses continued on their sellout tour, facing many hurdles along the way, such as Axel needing to miss shows due to exhaustion, implications with troublesome fans, and even playing through an extreme storm in Germany, where the fans couldn't tell the difference between lightning and pyrotechnics, as the Gunners performed the full set drenched. Shortly after this show, Duff would come down with a bad case of the flu, forcing him to be medicated and to be put on bed rest. Axel would also begin to experience a sore throat, putting their next shows at risk. They pulled through and performed in the Netherlands, but Duff was noticeably worse after the show. He was on bed rest for a further two days and their next show in Belgium would be cancelled. On the 25th of June 1992, Slash was included in the filming of the Michael Jackson video clip for Give In To Me. Slash featured on the track playing a hard driving melodic rhythm to the dark rock ballad. The track was released later in February 1993 and would go to number one in New Zealand, Poland and Ireland and reach the top five in four other countries including the UK and Australia. The track and video also included Gunners member Gilby Clark and former Living Colour bass guitarist Muzz Skillings. On the 2nd of July, Guns N' Roses performed in Lisbon, Portugal and were subjected to items such as empty water bottles being thrown at them by the crowd. The two support acts Soundgarden and Faith No More also had to put up with this hostility from the crowd. During the middle of the opening song, Axel slipped on one of the bottles while running around on stage and landed straight on his back where he remained for the next two songs. Duff helped him up and checked on him before Axel told the crowd that they would leave if it continued and that they didn't come here to get hurt. Due to it continuing, the band stopped playing and walked off stage. 
After they had calmed down, the band returned to the stage and were halfway through a performance of Civil War when the crowd began to throw lighters and firecrackers at one another in the crowd. Axel stopped the show once again and a Portuguese man came onto stage to attempt to calm the audience down. Finally things calmed down when the Gunners commenced the show for the third time, playing patience and no more incidents occurred. On May the 12th, 1992, Slasher Metallica's Lars Ulrich announced that the two bands would co-headline a tour together. Their first show together would take place on the 17th of June, 1992, with Faith No More performing as their opening act in Washington, D.C. While Guns N' Roses were on tour with Metallica, Slasher's drug and alcohol use had gotten out of hand and on one night it had gone too far. Slash was found passed out in a hotel corridor outside of the elevator on the 6th floor at 6 in the morning. Slash was found by a Spanish maid as Slash recalls moments before collapsing. The paramedics were called and when they arrived Slash was blue and had no pulse. He had been dead for a total of 8 minutes when he was stabbed in the heart with adrenaline by the paramedics and was luckily revived. He described the feeling of dying as hearing radio waves and seeing everybody moving really quickly. He had been brought a range of drugs by some drug dealers just the hour before, and Slash had taken the lot. This would become the third time Slash has overdosed and flatlined, and luckily Slash made a full recovery, but not before being taken to hospital, only to check himself out and leave early against the doctor's orders. On the 8th of August 1992, a second riot broke out during a performance in Montreal, Canada. After Metallica lead singer James Hetfield was badly burnt from a pyrotechnic fault which resulted in Metallica's second hour of the show being cancelled, leaving the crowd restless and angry due to a mass delay. When the Gunners finally took to the stage, they were seemingly unprepared in relation to tuning of the stage monitors, which made it difficult for the band to hear themselves, and Axel was complaining of his voice hurting, which led him to again walk off stage, cancelling the gig. The crowd rioted over this, overturned police vehicles, looted the venue and created bonfires in the crowd with several fans and police officers receiving nasty injuries with police arresting a large number of individuals. On October the 10th 1992, Slash got married to his girlfriend Renee Suran in Marina del Rey, California. Later on in the back end of 1992, Motorhead were assigned to open for the Gunners as Slash realised another of his dreams and was now bigger than one of the biggest metal bands of all time, and one of his greatest influences. The tour rolled on with another riot in Venezuela, and further downpours forcing the band to perform in harsh weather conditions. On April 3rd, 1993, Guns N' Roses performed in Sacramento, California, where Duff is hit in the head by a hard bottle that Slash describes as a bottle of piss. Duff is taken to hospital and Slash walks onto stage and announces that the bottle had knocked Duff out and he was unconscious. He then stated that the show is over and to leave peacefully and said, don't fuck with anyone and don't fuck with the building. During Slash's time with the Gunners, he would usually hang out with his bandmates while Axel would be off on his own. Slash would attend dinosaur exhibitions as one of his favourite hobbies was collecting dinosaur figurines. He would go out to go-karting, go to dinner, attend museums and watch horror movies with his bandmates. By this time, Axel began to distance himself even further from the band and would become involved in a range of altercations involving police. While on his own in his hotel room, Slash started recording and working on new material with his portable studio equipment in Germany. 
On the 16th of July, 1993, Slash would perform live for the last time as a Guns N' Roses member at the River Plate in Buenos Aires, Argentina, in front of 70,000 screaming fans, also marking the end for Matt Sorum and Gilby Clark. On July 18th, 1993, Guns N' Roses wrapped up their massive tour after performing for over 7 million people across a total of 27 countries. Following the tour, Steve Adler received a back payment of $2.2 million and 15% of royalties for his contribution to songs he had recorded, including Civil War. Later that year in October, Slash would feature on Duff's first solo album, and the Gunners' final album involving Slash would be released on the 23rd of November, called The Spaghetti Incident, which featured an album full of covers. The album itself was named after an incident involving Steve Adler, where his band members discovered Adler had been keeping his heroin in the fridge next to takeaway containers of Italian food. The album was critically panned though, and received backlash for the inclusion of a cover of known cult leader, murderer, and wannabe musician Charles Manson for his song, Look At Your Game Girl, as a hidden bonus track. The album was produced while on tour, and most of the songs had been recorded during the process through the Use Your Illusion album recordings. The album itself did quite well, and debuted at number 4 in the US, and sold 190,000 copies in just its first week, which was significantly less than previous albums. It went to number 1 in Australia, and peaked in the top 5 in 8 countries, including New Zealand. Singles from the album included Hair of the Dog, originally by Nazareth, Ain't It Fun by The Dead Boys, and I Don't Care About You by Fear. Ain't It Fun received the most airtime of the singles and had a top 10 run in four countries, including the UK, Sweden, Norway, and the US rock charts. Slash had approached Axel about a potential sixth album from the band as he had wrote a number of songs along with Matt Sorum. Axel turned down these songs, thinking they weren't good enough, and this was the final straw for Slash, as he felt Axel was too obsessive with having his own material as a centerpiece, and Slash felt Axel's rejection of his songs was unwarranted. In May 1994, Duff would face near death after his pancreas exploded due to excessive alcohol abuse over the years. This ruled him out of any future material with the Gunners anytime soon. Due to Axel's disapproval of the latest material for Guns N' Roses' next album, due to a lack of input from himself, Slash decided to take his material and start up his own project, calling it Slash's Snake Pit. Originally Slash didn't want his name in the band title, but Geffen Records insisted. Slash brought Gilby Clark and Matt Sorum with him to be part of his band, alongside Eric Dover of Jellyfish on vocals and Mike Inez of Alice in Chains on bass. The songs produced originally for Guns N' Roses were used on Slash's Snake Pit's debut album called It's Five O'Clock Somewhere, naming the album this after overhearing the expression used in an airport. Later that year in December, a cover of the Rolling Stones track Sympathy for the Devil would become the last recorded track Duff, Slash and Matt Sorum would record with Axel and Guns N' Roses. The track experienced some success worldwide, reaching number 2 in Finland and the top 10 in 10 countries, including the UK and the US rock mainstream chart. Axel also enlisted his good friend and former associate of Hollywood Rose, Paul Tobias, on rhythm guitar in place of Gilby Clark. Slash and Paul clashed and struggled to see eye to eye. Paul created tension within the band and made Slash feel uncomfortable. Later in September 1996, Slash told the band, either Paul goes or I go. 
Slash was furious by his bandmate Gilby Clark's dismissal by Axel Rose without consulting him or the other members. Slash didn't like that Paul Tobias was getting special treatment and was acting like the band revolved around him and Axel. Gilby was still technically a member of the band when Sympathy for the Devil was recorded and Slash couldn't believe Gilby was left out for a nobody like Paul Tobias. Duff and Matt also found the sacking of Gilby and assignment of Paul as ridiculous and it caused a massive rift in the band resulting in the eventual breakup of the classic liner. Slash's Snake Pit released their debut album in February 1995 and it was critically praised for its ability to steer away from the current popular alternative and grunge scene. It managed to sell over 1 million copies in the US alone, where it went platinum with hardly any promotion from label Geffen Records and charted considerably well, reaching number 11 in Sweden, 15 in Austria, Switzerland and the UK, while only charting at number 81 in the US, despite its success there. Slash released two singles from the album called Good To Be Alive and Beggars and Hangers On, which charted at number 21 in the US and at 81 in Australia. The single Beggars and Hangers On was a blues rock style track that really is an underrated track for its time. Slash's guitar playing is some of his best work over his whole career, as he plays a blues rock style throughout the song. The song was written about the issues surrounding the city of LA, including the problems with drugs, prostitution, alcoholism and dealers. All 12 tracks were written by Slash and vocalist Eric Dover. While most of the songs were about Slash's frustrations over his time with Guns N' Roses and working with Axl Rose, the track Be The Ball was written as a reference to Slash's favourite pastime pinball and his favourite book called Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter Thompson. Slash co-produced his own album along with Mike Klink. Slash's good friend and former bandmate also co-wrote the single Beggars and Hangers On with Slash while Slash's brother Albion, who was also known as Ash Hudson, designed the album cover art, taking after his father Anthony. The album artwork featured a rattlesnake wearing Slash's top hat and smoking a cigarette while wrapped around a bone, contorting its body in an S-shape for Slash. After the release of the album, Slash's Snake Pit toured Australia, the US, the UK, Europe and Japan. Bass guitarist Mike Inez and drummer Matt Sorum weren't into touring with the band, with Sorum opting to return to the Gunners and side project Neurotic Outsiders with Duff, while Inez was required to return to Alice in Chains for their upcoming album. Slash replaced Inez with James Lomenzo, a one-time member of Megadeth, and Brian Tishy, replacing Sorum on drums, known for his time performing with Ozzy Osbourne, Whitesnake, Billy Idol and Foreigner. Slash says it was the easiest and most fun he has had on tour in a long time as everyone got along and were there to play rock and roll and weren't all about creating drama that had ruined the Gunners over the years. This environment gave Slash a sense that there was more out there to achieve and the toxic relationship with Axel was not worth continuing. Just when Slash was due to book a second leg of the tour, Geffen Records pulled all funding instructing Slash that he now had to return to Guns N' Roses as Axel was now ready to focus on the next album. Due to Slash's contract, he didn't have much choice but to cancel the planning for a second leg and return to LA disbanding Slash's Snake Pit in 1996. During 1996, Slash featured on guitarist Westar Keane's band, The Outpatient's only album called The Anxious Disease, featuring on a track named after the album title with Axl Rose, which became the last time the two would be featured together on a track. 
Duff and former Gunners member Izzy also featured on tracks on the album. The years of tension and frustration between Slash and Axl Rose had finally came to a head in October of 1996, where Axl notified MTV via fax that Slash had quit Guns N' Roses. Slash's response was, Axl and I have not been capable of seeing eye to eye on Guns N' Roses for some time. We tried to collaborate, but at this point, I'm no longer in the band. Slash stated, Axl's whole visionary style, as far as his input in Guns N' Roses, is completely different from mine. I just like to play guitar, write a good riff, go out there and play, as opposed to presenting an image. Slash's departure from Guns N' Roses upset many diehard fans, but Slash was quick to start working further on his solo career and performing with a range of artists. Guns N' Roses quickly moved to replace Slash by hiring Robert Fink, who was the guitarist previously for Nine Inch Nails. Initially, Slash appeared alongside the two-piece band called Chick, fronted by guitarist and vocalist Niall Rogers and bass guitarist Bernard Edwards. Slash performed with the band for several concerts in Japan and performed at the funk legend James Brown's 63rd birthday celebration before working on the soundtrack for Quentin Tarantino's dark comedy crime film called Curdled in late 1996 alongside Spanish singer Marta Sanchez. For two years from 1996 to 1998, Slash started up another project and toured with blues cover band Slash's Blues Ball. He enlisted vocalist Teddy Andreatis, who was a former harmonica, organ, harp, synthesizer and keyboard player for Guns N' Roses and worked on Slash's Snake Pit's debut album. The project was designed to keep Slash busy while he decided what his next move would be after officially leaving the Gunners. While on tour, the band played a range of blues versions of Guns N' Roses songs, Bob Dylan tracks and Slash's Snake Pit tunes while also covering tracks from B.B. King, Steppenwolf and Otis Redding. Fans recall that Slash blew the roof off and was very interactive with the fans before, during and after the show. Slash and his band travelled to Budapest, Amsterdam, London and even Area 51 for one-off shows and performed over 40 shows, with the last of them wrapping up in LA in late January 1998. During Slash's time with Slash's Blues Ball, former Guns N' Roses drummer Steven Adler performed with his new band Freaks in the Room for the first time after overcoming his addictions. Matt Sorum soon left the Gunners after raising his concerns over Axel's good friend and rhythm guitarist Paul Tobias. Sorum was fired over his comments in April 1997 and stated later on that Paul was like the Yoko Ono of Guns N' Roses who practically split up the band. Around four months later, Duff resigned due to family and parental commitments, leaving just Axel as the only original of the band, and he purchased the full rights to the band later in 1997. After this, a number of musicians would come and go from the band as it began to lose its true identity, and Axel slowly faded off with the Guns N' Roses name. Axel attempted to keep it alive, writing material for a new album called Chinese Democracy that wouldn't be released in its entirety for another 10 years as singles slowly were released over time due to members constantly leaving and joining and disrupting the band. At the back end of 1997, Slash would divorce his wife Renee Saran after 5 years of marriage. While Slash was still sporadically touring with his blues cover band, he decided to begin planning on getting a new lineup for Slash's Snake Pit together to produce a second album. Slash received an influx of 300 audition tapes for a vocalist. 
Australian singer John Stevens of the band Noiseworks was one of these and was extremely close to becoming the singer as the two had previously collaborated until Stevens decided to return to Australia to focus on his solo career, leaving the door open for a previously unknown singer named Rod Jackson to be selected. Bass player from Slash's Blues Ball named Johnny Griparic was also hired along with guitarist Ryan Roxy and drummer Matt Laug who both had played for Alice Cooper in his band. During 1999, Slash performed a range of covers with Duff and Matt Sorum at the Slamdance Film Festival in Utah, stoking rumours that the band were getting back together, but this was dismissed by the three of them. Shortly after this, also in 1999, Slash and his new lineup began rehearsing, writing and recording in Oceanway Studios, and Slash's new home that he had recently bought in Beverly Hills, where he built his own personal recording studio. Geffen Records then folded, joining Interscope Records while the band were working on the album, and Interscope discussed with Slash that their style wasn't what the label usually puts out. Slash decided after 12 years of being signed by David Geffen to buy the album back off the record label and signed a deal with Kosh Records. Soon after the album was finished and due for release, guitarist Ryan Roxy left the band and was replaced by former Warrant and Rat guitarist Kerry Kelly. Slash's Snake Pit supported ACDC on their Stiff Upper Lip tour from August to September of 2000, while they also played a number of their own headliner shows within the US, but this was short-lived. On the 20th of October 2000, Slash's Snake Pit released their second album named Ain't Life Grand under Kosh Records. The album reached its highest peak in Australia at number 56. The album artwork featuring cartoon drawings of Slash and his four band members designed again by Slash's brother and his art company, Con Art. While Slash was again shredding at his usual best, the band chemistry was evidently not there as the album failed to sell as well as their first Snake Pit album. The first single called Mean Bone was heavily criticised for a female vocal and rap that appeared to destroy the song and its potential. Both singles, Mean Bone and promo single, Been There Lately, both failed to chart worldwide. The album overall received mixed reviews, with many critics believing the band Slash had assembled didn't gel or suit his style. The songwriting was also criticised, along with the heavy rock style becoming repetitive. Slash's Snake Pit were dropped just two months later by Kosh Records, but Slash decided to tour the album regardless. While supporting ACDC on their second leg in the US winter, just two shows in, a 35-year-old Slash fell ill with pneumonia, hospitalising him in Pittsburgh and forcing the band to withdraw from supporting the Aussie Rockers further on their tour in 2001. Slash would return home to Beverly Hills to recuperate and later revealed that he had suffered from cardiac myopathy, which is a heart condition that involves symptoms of shortness of breath, fainting and tiredness and fatigue and could be an early sign of heart failure. Slash states that it was caused from excessive alcohol and substance abuse and that his heart had got so swollen that it was close to rupturing. Slash would undergo surgery to have a defibrillator installed to kick his heart back into gear should it fail again. He was told on one occasion that he had anywhere from 6 days to 6 weeks to live before seeking a second doctor's opinion who stated that he would survive as long as his bad behaviours ceased. He underwent a range of physical therapies to help him deal with his condition and soon returned to performing, this time with Michael Jackson. As Slash played away losing himself in the moment, he thought pyrotechnics were going off when he noticed that it must have been his defibrillator. 
He was concerned that he may be on the verge of having a heart attack, but went to hospital to discover that it had not been set correctly and was on an extremely low setting, which triggered the pacemaker to react. Slash moved past this and was told to take it easier on the drugs and booze, which he wouldn't exactly follow through on. In Slash's prime, he would down a load of vodka and one to two bottles of Jack Daniels a day to keep him going on tour, which eventually resulted in his tongue turning black. In his gunner's days, Slash would be renowned for being one of the heaviest drinkers and drug abusers in the band, and this evidently took its toll on his body years later. Back in his Guns N' Roses days, Slash and the band would live off biscuits and gravy and fast food chain Denny's as their source of nutrition. They were often found on the streets or passed out on the floor of strippers' houses with drugs, empty bottles of booze and pizza boxes strung about with lyrics of songs they had wrote on them. Slash and his bandmates would often perform live while intoxicated, with Slash needing to be propped up by the speakers and often vomiting behind them while on stage. Gone were the days of the 24-hour parties, cocaine Tupperware containers, trashing hotel rooms, and going on ecstasy, heroin, acid and cocaine trips, running through hotel lobbies and golf courses, screaming while naked. Slash had attempted to get clean on a number of occasions, but the temptation had been too strong for him. He describes one particular time that he had attended a golf course resort as a form of rehab, and while he planned on getting clean, he couldn't part with his drugs, taking them along just in case. He then took cocaine which he had brought and had a bad trip where the police were called. Slash described this particular trip as he was running from predators with rubbery looking dreadlocks chasing after him with harpoons and machine guns. In order to escape them, he punched through a glass door, ran through it and then used a maid at the resort as a human shield before going and hiding behind a lawnmower. Slash told police about the attack and recalled the event saying, I was still high enough that I told the story without a shred of self-consciousness. Slash attributed his drinking and drug problem to boredom while on the road, on tour and especially when shows were cancelled. He also states that when he was drinking, it was usually for a reason. Either he was depressed or had bad anxiety and wanted to be reclusive. He recalls the 90s as a blur, as he was drunk all the time from morning to night and describes it as the worst period of his substance and alcohol abuse. Slash knew he needed to turn his life around, that he was out of control and he needed to stay alive as he would soon become a father, although the battle would never be an easy one. Slash returned to Slash's snake pit to continue touring for less than a month of shows in June to early July of 2001, performing three co-headline shows with Billy Idol. Later that year, on the 15th of October, Slash would marry his new girlfriend, Perla Ferrer, in Maui, Hawaii. On New Year's Eve, Slash attended a Guns N' Roses tour, hoping to watch Axel's new look band in action, but was told to leave as the Gunners manager, Doug Goldstein, wasn't sure what Slash's intentions really were. In early 2002, Slash decided to disband Slash's snake pit for the final time, after realising the rest of the band lacked professionalism and commitment to the band. Axel Rose would ban all fans from wearing Slash merch at Guns N' Roses concerts and holding up signs referring to him, usually asking security to kick him out of the venue. On the 28th of August 2002, Slash relocated with Perla to a new house in the Beverly Hills, after the birth of his first son, naming him London Emilio Hudson, and was forced to relocate his extensive snake and reptile collection due to his parental commitments. 
Over the years, Slash would collaborate with Carole King, Insane Clown Posse, Mexican singer Elan, B.B. King, Barbara Streisand, The Yardbirds, Paul Rogers, Ronnie Wood, Cheap Trick, Lenny Kravitz on his track Always on the Run, and he also recorded the score for the soundtrack of the film The Wrestler. Slash enjoyed his time playing for and collaborating with other artists, but felt as though, once something was recorded for a part or song on their album, that it takes a piece of you every time, and that solo music was more fulfilling and rewarding. On February 23, 2003, Slash lost out to the Flaming Lips for Best Rock Instrumental Performance at the Grammys after being nominated the month prior for his version of the Godfather love theme. Slash would remain close with Matt Sorum and Duff McKagan, performing them sporadically over the years. At a 2002 tribute concert for Ozzy Osbourne's drummer, Randy Castillo, after he had died from cancer, the three former Gunners realised they still had a great chemistry when collaborating and performing together, so they decided to start a new band. The three began working with the members of the band Buck Cherry, named Josh Todd and Keith Nelson, and produced an early demo of what would become their first single later on. Originally Josh and Keith were set to join the band, but this fell through. Former Gunners guitarist Izzy Stradlin was initially intended to be the singer and rhythm guitarist as part of the band, but left after just two weeks when Slash decided they need to find an external lead singer. They hired Dave Kushner on rhythm guitar in place of Izzy from the band Loaded that Duff had previously been a part of alongside him, and Slash coincidentally had gone to junior high and high school with him. The four members jammed together, and Slash loved the energy that Dave brought to the band. They searched far and wide for nine months for the perfect singer, testing the group's patience along the way, with Matt Sorum the most visibly distressed by the lengthy process. Slash placed ads everywhere, even in newspapers and at the back of magazines like the old-fashioned methods. Sebastian Batch of Skid Row, Miles Kennedy of the Mayfield Four, Mike Patton of Faith No More, Travis Meeks of The Days of the New, and Ian Asprey of The Cult all declined offers to audition for the band. They sat through loads of demo tapes, ranging from amateur to semi-professional singers, until they stumbled upon Stone Temple Pilots lead singer, Scott Wyland, who was on break from his band. Duff had recently befriended Scott at his local gym, and Duff mentioned that he should audition. Scott would come for an audition on March 18th, 2003, and was quickly hired as the fifth member of the band. At first the band referred to themselves as The Project, and was eventually set to be called Reloaded, Black Velvet Revolver, or Revolver, until Velvet Revolver was settled upon. This occurred while Slash and Scott were at the movies together and were discussing how Revolution Studios sounds like Revolver and to lessen the harshness of a Revolver, they added the Velvet part. Scott Weiland was a risky choice for the band as he was a known junkie at the time and was quite erratic but his vocal ability and stage presence was undeniable. The beginning of Velvet Revolver was quite a rocky one, as Scott failed to show up to their first official rehearsal as a band and showed up two hours late the following day at the band's showcase to their label, Industry Heavies. The band continued on with Scott as the frontman, although he would continuously struggle with his addictions. They released their first single in 2003, called Set Me Free, which featured in the feature film for The Hulk. The song is heavily dominated by Slash's insanely difficult guitar riffs and solos, and features Scott singing for the first time on this track. 
It managed to reach number 17 on the mainstream rock charts in the US without any promotion as they were yet to be signed by a record label. The song was produced by Velvet Revolver and was sent to Scott to record his vocals to when he was still in the audition and rehearsal phase. When Scott had officially joined the band, he took some of Velvet's material back to his studio and reworked the vocals to suit his style, coming out with the tracks Big Machine and Dirty Little Thing. The band also released a cover version of Pink Floyd's Money for the soundtrack for the film The Italian Job. In May 2003, Scott Weiland would reach out to Slash for advice and to seek help for his addictions, as Slash himself had gone through it. Scott checked himself into rehab, and Slash and Duff encouraged the band to stick by him, as they had been in his shoes before. Just a week later, Scott Weiland was arrested for drug possession of cocaine and heroin, bringing unwanted press attention to the band. The court ruled that Scott can walk free and avoid jail time if he attends rehab. Velvet Revolver and Slash decided to stand by him and help him through this tough time. Slash was a big fan of what Scott brought to the band and was afraid to lose him after searching for so long, as Slash compared him to a mixture of John Lennon, Jim Morrison and David Bowie as a performer and vocalist. During his time in rehab, Scott had virtually finished writing the rest of the tracks while in recovery and the rest of the band had been working on the instrumental side of things on the outside. When Scott returned from rehab, the band got back into the studio and finished their debut album together. They began generating a lot of interest from record labels, attracting Warner Brothers, Elektra and Chrysalis, and eventually deciding they would sign with RCA Records. The final recording process though had its challenges as Slash was required to record his parts in a smaller studio away from the band and Scott could only put three hours in a day due to his court orders, making him return to a halfway house. Slash was also having personal issues, and on one particular day on Sunset Boulevard, Slash would roll his Nissan Pathfinder ten times while under the influence of alcohol, almost killing him for the second time in a number of years. The local LA police would often let him off of charges and arrest to take pictures with the star due to his profile and this behaviour went on for a while beforehand but due to this accident and the need to step up as a parent, Slash would soon give up the drink and drugs for good. Velvet Revolver's debut album Contraband was released on the 8th of June 2004 and featured the iconic album artwork of a black silhouette of actress, Rena Raphael, sporting a holstered revolver against a white background. The album was a massive success and soared to number one in Canada and the US and number two in Australia. It made the top five in New Zealand, Norway and Sweden and would go two times platinum in both Canada and the US, selling over 2.9 million copies in the US alone. The album debuted in the US at number one and sold 256,000 copies in its first week of release and went on to sell 4 million copies worldwide making them one of the fastest selling debut rock bands of all time in American music history. Contraband received rave reviews, it was nominated for a Grammy, and the band were touted as one of the best heavy rock bands around at the time. The second single released by the band on May 24, 2004 was called Sliver, which would become their most successful single commercially to date. The track received plenty of airtime and reached its highest charting position on both the US alternate and mainstream rock charts at number 1. Sliver also came in at number 12 in Norway, 19 in Finland, 26 in Australia, 35 in the UK and 56 on the US mainstream popular charts. 
The lyrics all are written by Wyland about a relationship. The band including Slash are all credited for co-writing the track. Velvet Revolver would go on to win a Grammy at the 2005 Grammy Awards for Best Hard Rock Performance. The song sounds much like a Stone Temple Pilots track and features a heavy rock rhythm much different to Slash's earlier work with the Gunners and his more blues style projects. On June 23rd, 2004, Slash and his wife Perla welcomed their second born son into the world, naming him Cash Anthony Hudson. Velvet Revolver's third single, called Fall to Pieces, was released on the 13th of September, 2004, and went to number one in Canada and the US on their rock charts. It struggled to crack the top 30 worldwide in relation to mainstream pop charts, but was another strong piece of music by the band. The song speaks about Scott's heroin addiction and its effect on his personal life, which is something all of the members of Velvet Revolver, including Slash, can heavily relate to. The song was built off a riff Slash had fought up and matched the song perfectly. The song almost sounds more like a Guns N' Roses track as the verses are mellow and Slash plays a riff similar to Sweet Child O' Mine while the chorus ramps up to a more heavy rock style of music. Fall to Pieces was also nominated for a Grammy for Best Rock Song in 2005. The final single from the album was released on the 20th of September 2004 and was called Dirty Little Thing. The track managed to make it to number 8 on the mainstream rock charts in the US and number 9 on the Canadian rock charts. It features a great fast paced heavy rock guitar solo from Slash and the track itself is a high energy thrash rock track. It features a similar sound to the album opener called Sucker Train Blues where Slash plays a number of solos swapping his famous Gibson Les Paul for a Fender Telecaster 1956 and a Fender Stratocaster 1965. On June 21st, 2005, Velvet Revolver contributed a single for the film Fantastic Five called Come On Come In that reached number 14 on the US mainstream rock charts before touring for a total of 19 months. They travelled to Australia, New Zealand, Japan and performed two legs in the US, Europe and the UK along with charity performances including Live 8. During the tour, Slash, Scott, Duff and Matt began to relapse on drugs and alcohol, creating problems along the way, with Dave Kushner managing to stay sober. Slash recalls that they thought Scott was a lost cause on tour as he got badly back into the drugs and that the band's spirits started to reach new lows and became a negative experience. While on tour, Velvet Revolver began working on their next album called Libertad that would reach its completion in March 2007. Following this, Slash and Velvet Revolver performed for Van Halen at his Hall of Fame induction and played alongside Aerosmith in South America before releasing a surprise limited edition EP to Australians and South Americans called Melody and the Tyranny on the 6th of June 2007 which featured a cover of the Talking Heads track Psycho Killer and a single to later feature on their second album called She Builds Quick Machines. The single managed to reach number 2 on the mainstream rock charts in the US and is a solid heavy rock tune that features some great guitar work from Slash. Following the EP's release was the debut of Velvet Revolver's second studio album on July 3rd, 2007 called Libertad. Libertad managed to debut and peak at number 5 in the US but was nowhere near as successful as their debut album, only selling 92,000 copies in its first week in the US. It peaked at number 2 in Canada, 3 in New Zealand, 4 in Finland, 6 in the UK and 10th in Australia, but failed to reach platinum worldwide. 
Despite the single, she builds quick machines, having relative success in the US. The single's The Last Fight, Let It Roll, and Get Out The Door struggled to break the top 10 on the US mainstream rock charts. Although the album struggled commercially, it did manage to receive mostly positive reviews from critics stating that they had managed to discover their own style away from Stone Temple Pilots and The Gunners. Velvet Revolver decided to go on tour in August 2007, touring with Alice in Chains around the US until October, and were later denied entry to perform in Japan due to visa issues. This was followed by more cancelled shows due to Scott Weiland relapsing and being arrested for crashing his car while under the influence of drugs. In October 2007, Slash's trademark image would be advertised on billboards, magazines and buses as the video game Guitar Hero 3 Legends of Rock would begin to be released on PlayStation, Xbox and Wii. The game's cover artwork features Slash at centre frame with two fictional guitarists alongside him. Slash would become the face of the newest and most popular craze where gamers can play their favourite rock tunes as Slash or Rage Against the Machines' Tom Morello. With Slash featuring heavily on the front cover and in-game, it would open him up to a new generation of music lovers and keep his iconic look alive. The guitar-style controller for the game also resembles a Gibson Les Paul, adding another dimension of Slash's legacy. In 2008, Velvet Revolver was set to tour Australia, but due to illness and health issues regarding Scott Weiland's drug problems, he would voluntarily check himself into rehab once more. Slash and his Velvet Revolver bandmates began to grow tired of these out-of-control and unpredictable antics of Scott's. It caused tensions and many arguments amongst the band, and it was like deja vu for Slash after dealing with Axel in the Gunners. Having to cancel the Australian tour dates was the final straw for the band, and when they travelled to the UK to perform in April, Scott was hardly talking to Slash or his bandmates and would only speak to them during arguments in rehearsals. At a show in Glasgow, Scotland, Scott announced it would be his last show and quickly quit the band after the show, despite being unaware that Slash and his bandmates were close to firing him anyway. Later in 2008, Slash began looking for a new singer for Velvet Revolver and was said to be in talks with Lenny Kravitz, Miles Kennedy and Chester Bennington of Linkin Park. For a short time, Frankie Perez was hired as the lead singer, but Slash and his bandmates were coming in and out of the band and becoming involved in solo projects. The band unofficially disbanded in late 2008, with Slash now searching for his next project. Slash, Matt, Dave and Duff all stayed close and performed together from time to time. During 2008, Slash had begun working on his first solo album as he saw it as a good escape from the politics and toxicity of band life, describing the experience as fulfilling and cleansing. Slash recorded the album over seven months, ending in November 2009. He brought in a range of star-studded vocalists for the album to sing the songs he had written, including the cult lead singer Ian Asprey, Ozzy Osbourne, Fergie of the Black Eyed Peas, Miles Kennedy of Alterbridge, Chris Cornell of Soundgarden, Andrew Stockdale of Aussie Rockers Wolfmother, Adam Levine of Maroon 5, Lemmy Kilmister of Motorhead, Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters, Kid Rock, Iggy Pop, M Shadows of Avenged Sevenfold, Rocco De Luca, and Alice Cooper, while Stephen Adler, Izzy Stradlin, and Duff McKagan from the classic Gunners lineup all made appearances. 
The album self-titled Slash was released on the 31st of March 2010 and features a frenzy of hard rock and metal tracks. The album cover features a skull and crossbones wearing a Slash top hat against a red background. The album sold 63,000 copies in its first week in the US, where it went to number one on the US rock charts. It also went to number one in five countries, including New Zealand and Finland, and reached the top five in seven other countries, including Australia and the US Billboard 200. Before the album's official release, a track named Sahara was released for Japanese fans, featuring Japanese hard rocker Koshi Inaba as the track finished in the top 10 on three different mainstream charts in the country. The first single to be released to the westernised world was By the Sword featuring Wolfmother's Andrew Stockdale on vocals, which charted at number 41 on the Billboard rock charts in the US. Slash would release seven singles in total from the album, with none of them gaining much commercial success. Overall, the album was a great mix of stars and talent, with Slash once again showing off his legendary guitar skills and reverting back to some of his classic Slash techniques. The album received mixed to positive reviews, but it is an album that Slash is incredibly proud of. During 2010, Slash decided to head out on tour to promote the album with Miles Kennedy as the lead singer. Slash was impressed and amazed by the Alter Bridge singer and his incredible voice. They began touring as a support act for Ozzy Osbourne, with Todd Kearns on bass, former Alice Cooper drummer Brent Fitz on drums, and former Slash's blues ball member Bobby Schneck on rhythm guitar. During this time, Axl Rose had released his new album with his new look Guns N' Roses band called Chinese Democracy, which was 10 years in the making and it went to number one in seven countries, including Australia and New Zealand, while charting within the top five in the UK and the US. The album was a reasonable success, selling 3 million copies worldwide and 261,000 copies in just its first week, but this was quickly halted and sales fell below expectations. In a major controversy that affected album sales, American store Best Buy bought 1.3 million copies from Universal Music Group and in 2011 placed them on shelves for $2 each, raising the number of album sales overall. The lineup for Guns N' Roses at the time consisted of Axel, Robert Fink, Ron Thal, Paul Tobias, Richard Fortas, Tommy Stinson, Frank Ferrer, Dizzy Reed, Brian Mantia, and Buckethead. Buckethead was a rival guitarist of Slash's, and instead of wearing a top hat as his gimmick, Buckethead was known for wearing a white mask and KFC bucket on his head. Buckethead had in fact left the band in June 2004 after joining in the year 2000, but due to the album being recorded over a 10 year period, Buckethead was left on the songs he had recorded. Due to many believing Slash had been replaced by Buckethead as a gimmick type guitarist, during a live performance in 2004, Slash would mock Buckethead by dressing as him, while Scott Weiland dressed as Axl Rose, suggesting there was in fact quite a bit of bad blood there. In January 2011, Slash got together with Duff, Matt and Dave and recorded nine demos without vocals and was seeking a new lead singer for Velvet Revolver. Although, this comeback was short-lived, as Slash was unsatisfied with what options were presented to him and opted to return to solo projects. In June 2011, Slash began working on his second solo album with members of his solo world tour, Miles Kennedy, Brent Fitz and Todd Kearns. 
Slash eventually named his band for the album, calling themselves Slash, featuring Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators. During April 2012, Slash was interrupted during a busy time as he worked on his new solo album after Guns N' Roses were honoured by being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The award came at a bad time for the former members as tensions were still high. Only classic members of the band over the years were inducted including Slash, Axl Rose, Duff McKagan, Izzy Stradlin, Dizzy Reed, Stephen Adler and Matt Sorum, with Gilby Clark unfortunately missing out. The Gunners took to the stage with Axel opting not to attend as he predicted it would be an awkward situation. Slash, Duff, Gilby, Steve and Matt Sorum took to the stage with Miles Kennedy on vocals in place of Axel to perform three tracks and accept the award. Uh, hello, we are Green Day. This is, uh, my name is Billy Joe, this is Mike and this is Trey Cool. And um, we're here to induct Guns N' Roses into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> the first time I saw Guns N' Roses on MTV, I thought one of these guys could end up dead or in jail. The opening riff of Welcome to the Jungle is a descending trip into the underworld of Los Angeles. This ride was not about parties, glamour, or power ballads. It was about the seedy underworld of misfits, drug addicts, paranoia, sex, violence, love, and anger in the cracks of Hollywood. It was a breath of fresh air. Needless to say, I bought the record. Appetite for Destruction is the best debut album in the history of rock and roll. Slash. While every guitar geek in L.A. was riding on the coattails of Eddie Van Halen, you took a totally different approach. You bridged the gap between Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, and Joe Perry, and you brought it into your own modern era. I can immediately identify your leads and riffs because you embody them. Your guitar playing is an extension of your heart and soul. To see you without a guitar and a top hat is just plain weird. And let's see, who am I missing? I don't know. No, shut the fuck up. Shut up. Shut up. This man's a badass fucking singer. He's one of the best frontmen to ever touch a microphone. Your lyrics are heartfelt, passionate, angry, and you tell the truth no matter what the cost. Your vocal range goes from a quiet whisper 
to a powerhouse until you're screaming bloody murder. And you're fucking crazy. <laughs> Most singers are crazy. Uh, I can vouch for that right now. But you know, I mean, being in a band is uh, it's a very complex thing. Uh, you go through eras and chapters of your life. But sometimes you got to look back at the old chapters if you want to move forward. And the reason why you have to look backwards is to know where you fucking come from. Ladies and gentlemen, Guns N' Roses. any harder I'm, I'm terrible with speeches all right but uh, I do want to thank the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for this uh, this acknowledgement but yeah most importantly um, I want to thank the fans because the fans are the ones that made it possible for us to get together tonight the fans the fans have been there since the beginning we've got new fans that have never seen the original lineup and they're still rooting for us but I also I also want to take a second I also, I gotta uh, give credit where credit's due. I gotta thank my wife as well, because when, when all the drama was going on, I started to succumb to like, you know what, fuck it. She said, you know, just go do it for the fans. And I said, you know what, you're right. So I gotta give her credit. And then, also, I wanna mention a couple people who were really responsible for taking this derelict, fucked up, dysfunctional van and seeing something in it and uh, going to the mat to get us signed and get us out there. And that was uh, Tom Zutat and uh, Teresa Insonat from Geffen Records. Uh, early on, it was Vicki Hamilton who tried to manage us with all her heart. And, uh, and, and ultimately, Alan Niven, who was the guy who was uh, really the one that helped pull it all together and get us out there. We became the band that, 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 uh, that, that <laughs> was born to lose that actually made it so I want to thank all of them but thank you all and uh, let's go play Slash's second solo album and first with Kennedy and the Conspirators was released on the 22nd of May 2012 calling it Apocalyptic Love the album is both a combination of heavy rock and heavy metal, but Kennedy's vocals mixed with Slash's Gibson Les Paul and the other two members playing cohesively makes for a great rock album. A lot of the tracks have a dark undertone and theme in relation to the lyrics, as Miles Kennedy also details his battles with drugs. When released, the album peaked at number one in New Zealand, number two in Australia and Canada, and made the top five in ten countries, including the US. The album itself received mixed to positive reviews and was praised for Slash's style for letting the hooks and riffs fly freely while praising Kennedy's great rock vocals. The band chemistry is noticeable, especially Slash's chemistry with Kennedy. The single, You're a Liar, managed to peak at number one on the Canadian rock charts, but failed to be a success elsewhere. In terms of single success, the album was solid instrumentally and vocally, but the lyrics and writing was lacking. During the American summer in 2014, Slash Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators went on tour supporting Aerosmith and promoting their album and announced in May 2014 that a third album would be coming soon. 
The album was released on the 10th of September 2014 and was once more released under the same name, Slash featuring Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators, and was called World on Fire. The album went to number one in Sweden, Switzerland and the US on their rock charts. It also managed to reach number two in Australia, Germany, Hungary and Ireland, while making the top five in six other countries, including New Zealand. It only managed to sell 29,000 copies in the US in its first week, and would slowly rise to over 80,000 copies sold in total in the US. The album itself received generally good reviews, and was praised for Slash's consistent ability to make an album great, with his enjoyable riffs and complex solos. This was accompanied by the tight band, known as The Conspirators, and Kennedy's great unforced vocals. The first single from the album, called World on Fire, managed to go to number one on the US Billboard mainstream rock chart and is described as an aggressive hard rock song. Slash describes the track being about sex, whereas Miles describes it relating to having no regrets and seizing the day. The second single, called Bent to Fly, is a blues rock song that also managed to chart at number three on the US mainstream rock charts. The track was used as a theme song for the Australian Rugby League competition, the NRL, and Slash would later perform a solo version of the track at the NRL Grand Final on the 5th of October 2014. During December of 2014, Slash filed for divorce with his wife and mother of his two sons, Perla Ferrer. Slash had already filed for divorce back in 2010, but changed his mind two months after the separation, but this time the two were done after 13 years of marriage. In the new year of 2015, Slash reconnected with former girlfriend and entourage member of Guns N' Roses, Megan Hodges. Hodges was once in a relationship with Slash during the early 90s and was a friend of Axl Rose's girlfriend, Erin Everly, at the time. Hodges has been seen to be a good influence on Slash, encouraging him to continue his musical career. During March 2015, Slash and Axel would speak via telephone regarding where the two were at with one another. The two explained to one another that they no longer hold any resentment or hatred towards each other anymore, and that their issues with one another had dissipated. Slash later revealed to the media that the two had spoken for the first time since 1996 and that they were on better terms, sparking a lengthy period of media speculation that Slash was coming back to the Gunners. This ramped up when DJ Ashbar and Ron Fowle were forced to leave the Gunners due to family and other band commitments, opening the door for the potential return of Slash. While speculation circled around a potential Slash and Gunners reunion, Former lead singer of Velvet Revolver, Scott Weiland, aged 48, was pronounced dead after succumbing to his drug addictions and dying of an accidental overdose. Drugs were found to be one of the causes, but an existing heart condition and asthma also contributed. Slash would attend his funeral with other members of Velvet Revolver and members of the Stone Temple Pilots at a quiet and small funeral service. On January 4, 2016, Axl Rose held a press conference to announce Duff McKagan and Slash will once again join him on stage, with Guns N' Roses as a headliner at Coachella in California. Before Coachella kicks off, Slash returns to perform with Axl for the very first time in 23 years, in a secret warm-up gig at the Troubadour in LA. Axel goes on tour with ACDC as their lead singer in the meantime, and returns to begin the Not In This Lifetime tour with Slash and Duff on June 23rd, 2016. 
Matt Sorum and Steve Adler were not invited to reunite, although Izzy Stradlin was, but flat out refused to return to the band, as he didn't agree with his cut of the earnings, stating it was very unfair and uneven. The Not In This Lifetime tour was named after something Axel had said in a 2012 interview where he was asked if there was any chance of the classic Guns N' Roses lineup returning, where Axel replied, Not In This Lifetime. The lineup would consist of Axel Rose, Slash, Duff McKagan, Dizzy Reed on keyboard, the Psychedelic Furs duo, Richard Fortas on rhythm guitar, and Frank Ferrer on drums, and finally, the first female Gunners member, Melissa Reese on synthesizer and sub bass. The Not In This Lifetime tour was a massive success, grossing over $560 million, making it the third highest grossing tour of all time, and in 2017 ranked as the second highest grossing tour. The tour wrapped up on the 2nd of November 2019, after three years on the road performing 175 shows across North America, South America, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, the UAE, the UK, the Middle East, Europe, Russia, Asia and South Africa. Over 4 million fans enjoyed some of the best live performances the band had put together, even if they were in their 50s. Slash was at his best and played incredible solos, with Axel's voice seemingly as good as his early appetite for destruction days. On stage appearances from Pink, Sebastian Batch, Angry Anderson, Billy Gibbons, Dave Grohl, Angus Young and former Gunners member Stephen Adler made for amazing guest appearances, giving their fans their money's worth. During the Guns N' Roses tour, Slash was a very busy man, releasing his fourth solo studio album, independently under his own record label, Snake Pit Records, on the 21st of September, 2018. Once again it featured Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators, and was called Living the Dream. The album managed to go to number one in Scotland, Switzerland and the US rock album chart. It also finished in the top five in seven countries, including Australia and the UK. Living the Dream sold a small 20,000 copies in its first week, and overall wasn't a massive breakout album, but it did receive positive reviews. Slash stated that the title for the album was supposed to be sarcastic and poke fun at the world we live in today, being a horrible, unfair and unhappy one. The album didn't have any breakthrough singles, although Driving Rain did receive some airplay and a considerable amount of sales. In 2018, Slash's divorce was finalised with ex-wife Perla after four years of being separated. His firstborn son, London Emilio, would also debut on drums in 2018 with his own band called Classless Act at the very place where Slash played on one of his first shows, at the Whiskey A Go Go. From 2019 to 2020, Slash and Duff have both spoken about a potential new album for Guns N' Roses being in the works, and this exciting news was heightened with the announcement of a new stadium tour of North America and a range of festival dates. Giving hope that Guns N' Roses aren't finished just yet, and that Slash and Axel have finally come to terms with their problems with one another, and move past their differences to just make great music and do what they love together, without the bullshit. Over the years, Slash has appeared in a range of TV shows and films such as The Drew Carey Show, The Deadpool starring Clint Eastwood, and comedy film Bruno. He is often mentioned in pop culture as an iconic figure, especially in adult cartoons such as South Park. Slash is a massive fan of the video game app Angry Birds, even playing a rock-themed tune for the Angry Birds space video game, and he is a massive fan of horror movies and the TV show The Walking Dead. 
Slash also produced his first ever horror film back in 2013, calling it Nothing Left to Fear. He would go on to release a number of his own movies that he had produced under the name Slasher Films in 2015, releasing The Hell Within. Along with this, Slash is quite the collector with a wide array of guitars in his collection. Slash has over 100 guitars in his collection with an estimated value of $1.9 million. It contains many Gibson Les Paul designs and he has been credited along with Zach Wilde for bringing the Les Paul back into the eyes of the public since the 80s. Slash has designed a range of approximately 17 Les Paul guitars in collaboration with Gibson and has also been known to use and design Gibson Firebirds and Explorers, along with Martin, Fender, BC Rich, Jackson and Gretsch. Slash also worked with Marshall to produce his own amplifier called the Marshall Slash Signature JCM-2555, which was a replica reissue of the amp Slash had rented and attempted to steal back in his early days with the Gunners. Slash would also work to design his own plectrums, pickups and wah pedals. Slash has accomplished many feats over his long and successful career and was awarded with a star on the Rock and Roll Wall of Fame alongside legendary guitarists Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy Page and Eddie Van Halen in 2007. He followed this up in 2012 by being awarded with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame right outside the Hard Rock Cafe. Slash is a board member at the charity Little Kids Rock that looks to provide music education programs into disadvantaged public schools and he is a heavily involved member who is passionate about kids being given the creativity to explore music and art. Slash plays for them regularly and donates instruments to schools and hopes one day it will encourage someone like him. Slash is also an advocate for animal and environmental welfare. He is a strong supporter and donator to Los Angeles Zoo and zoos all around the world, investing a lot of time and money into programs surrounding reptiles and snakes and the conservation of endangered species. Slash has now been clean from drugs and alcohol since 2005 and quit smoking cigarettes in 2009 when his mother Ola Hudson unfortunately passed away due to lung cancer. This was the wake-up call he needed to attempt to extend his life and be there for his beloved kids. Now at the age of 54, Slash is still going strong despite having a pacemaker keeping him going. Slash is one of the most iconic and insanely talented guitarists of all time. He is a well-liked individual in the music industry with his laid-back humble and down-to-earth nature often shining through despite the large top hat, sunglasses and black curly hair keeping his face hidden away. From the small town boy raised on British music in England to the bright lights of LA where he explored the wonders of the music industry, Slash gave up his first love of BMX riding for a guitar. Without meeting his school friend and Gunner's bandmate Stephen Adler, Slash may never have picked up a guitar or been inspired to pursue that goal. Slash rode the wave of success, the highs and lows of the music industry and the toxic nature of touring as a rock band literally staring deaf in the face a number of times. He produced some of the most influential hits alongside his Guns N' Roses bandmates including Paradise City, Sweet Child O' Mine, November Rain and Patience, just to name a few, while producing some of the best riffs and solos to ever be heard. His collaboration with Axl Rose although turned sour, for the most part the two combined beautifully creating music like only they could. 
due to differing personalities and ego problems getting in the way, Slash would eventually leave the band and go on to have a successful solo career, working on a range of projects such as Slash's Snake Pit, Slash's Blues Ball, Velvet Revolver, and his work with Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators. He was always happy for someone else to be the frontman, as long as he could just play his Gibson Les Paul how he wanted, and for the fans. He is respected in the music industry and has collaborated with countless stars such as Michael Jackson, Lenny Kravitz, Queen and Bob Dylan. There's no denying Slash will live on as one of the best guitarists of all time and his legacy will be felt for decades to come. Slash is now in a great place. He has given up the drugs, cigarettes and alcohol. He has two healthy teenage kids looking to follow in his footsteps and he is reunited with Guns N' Roses where he has patched his relationship up with Axl Rose and he continues his solo work with the promising Miles Kennedy. Slash can be incredibly proud of everything he has overcome and achieved in the music industry and life, cheating death several times, proving the fact that the world needs more Slash. Now all fans want to know is, what's next for the legendary rocker? Okay, thank you everyone for listening. I really hoped you enjoyed episode 5 featuring Slash. Please make sure you like, share, rate, subscribe and leave a positive review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, if you would like to support the podcast by becoming a patron, head to Patreon to check out how you can keep this podcast going and sign up to one of three membership packages starting at just $1 a month, which includes extra content and bonuses. Again, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Stay tuned for next week's episode, which will be revealed on our Facebook page at Lyrics of Their Life Podcast. I'm your host Adam Hampton, and this is Lyrics of Their Life.